0: We're live. Uh, thank you all for joining us uh, on this broadcast. Um, we are hosting this on uh, on my channel, the Freed Thinker. Um, but as we go through, everyone, I, uh, I think uh, a couple of you have other other outlets uh, we can share. Uh, this is going to be, you know, a, a great discussion talking about free will in the Bible, and compatibilism, compatibilism, other other libertarian free will, sure. um, you know, that that type of thing. Um, the, you know this is going to be a cage, cage fight, so we are gonna we're gonna fight to the debt. No, it should be a good, uh, a good discussion um, and hopefully um, help us to understand each other's position uh, a little bit better and give uh, those of you who are listening some resources and some things to think about and some vocabulary to, to better uh, conceptualize and talk about this topic. So uh, with that, I think we're just gonna kind of kick off going clockwise. Uh, we're gonna do just basic introductions to each other and then we're gonna go back around the horn background clockwise. And each take about five minutes to say why we think that this is an important conversation, um, and uh, and so you know, base, basic sketch of why we hold the view that we hold. So, uh, Dan, I will kick it over to you.
1: Sure. My name's Dan Chappa. I'm a uh, Christian. I have been um, since I was a little kid. And I'm a Southern Baptist and I teach Sunday school and things like that. I guess it's not called Sunday school. It's a youth group anyways. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm actively involved in my church and that sort of thing. And um, I guess on online discussions right now, I have a program with a uh, Turton fan. We co-host. He's another, uh, another Calvinist. And it's called Conversations in Calvinism. We usually do an episode you know every other week or so um diving into scripture and that sort of thing um, we get into a lot a lot of different topics but calvinism slash Arminianism is a, is a common re- reoccurring theme and so um i am an armenian but i'm also a molinist i don't think molinism will necessarily come up so much in this uh specific discussion but uh but i am a molinist so um that's my background Um, Finney, do you want to take it away
2: sure so um I'm Finney um, I'm not a professional uh, philosopher theologian by trade I'm an attorney for the city of Syracuse in New York State um, and I'm also I also serve as a uh, as a soldier I support the uh, the men and women of the Ford Trom 10th Mountain division um, in New York and I um, I, I've cared about philosophy for a very long time. I think uh, when I was 16, my sister got me a, a cl- complete collection of C.S. Lewis's books, which really got me into the field of philosophy, philosophy of religion, um, and theology. I think that it's an important subject, but I think that it's also not the most important subject. There are plenty of things that we could talk about. It's important to you know keep it uh, with a grain of salt. I, I find it an interesting Way to talk, approach uh, a number of different issues at the same time in the Bible, um, and I I find I I tend to, I, as Dan is, I'm also uh, an Arminian Wesleyan leaning Arminian. I attend a Vineyard Church in uh, Upstate New York. Um, I I tend to think that a source incompatibilist view of free will is the most consistent and. Uh, intuitive defensible view of free will in the bible but i also affirm total depravity and total inability for unbelievers i i tend to agree with augustine's fourfold states of man and given his second state i think that uh humans don't even have the natural conditional ability to obey the law uh, much less the categorical but i also uh, balance this with a as a wesleyan um my belief in provenient grace, um, my belief that God enables humans to have faith in Christ um, and through faith in Christ, uh, non-believers become believers and are empowered by the spirit to obey God's law. And so that at least with respect to believers and at least some of the time, humans possess the libertarian free will to obey the law, um, to do moral good And I think that there are other distinctions, even with respect to non-believers, with their ability to do civil good, for example, um, and free will on non-moral issues. Um, But that's essentially my view in a nutshell. I think it's an important subset of of our different worldviews. I think that it's one facet of my belief as an Arminian. Um, It's not the biggest, it's not the most important overriding view, Um,
0: but that's that. Thank you. Thank you, Fanny. Colton?
3: Yeah, so uh, my name is Colton Carlson. I'm a mathematics and philosophy teacher in Arizona, uh, Casa Grande, Arizona, about 30 miles south of Phoenix. And um, I've always loved uh, philosophy ever since I um, became a Christian when I was 15 and always found it very intriguing how it relates to theology. I remember my first couple of uh theology classes in uh, getting my major in theology and Bible, I was like blown away. I was like, this is awesome. Like, Why can't we do this all the time? And it's kind of just stuck with me. And um, I wasn't always, I think I uh, explained this on Dan Chapa's show a couple of weeks back, but I wasn't always uh, a Calvinist actually. So I grew up in an Arminian uh, leaning church, although those weren't the terms that they used. It, it was very evident looking back that it was Arminian and um, <clears throat> and so I kind of always thought that was the natural, like what the Bible talked about. And so I didn't become really uh, a Calvinist until college when I started looking at uh, certain scriptures and thinking about it more on a philosophical lens. So I say this a lot, and maybe I think Tyler perhaps disagrees with this, but I agree with it, uh, that I'm mainly a Calvinist for philosophical reasons. I think there is good scriptures uh to to point to which i think uh tyler and i will point to throughout our conversation but i'm mainly a calvinist uh for philosophical reasons namely i take the calvinist view to um be uh, cal determinism or compatibilism but i don't think that and this is a big part for where i lay out my view and we'll get into it but i don't think that determinism necessarily is entailed by compatibilism at least by definition So by application, I think it does. I think it's a good application that you can say, oh, if compatibilism is true, then meaning you could be determined and yet uh, free and morally responsible, then uh, why can't God create a world in which we are compatibilistically free? I think if determinism could follow via application, but I, I don't think just the mere definition or the thesis of compatibilism gets us to determinism. Um, I do think that uh, free will is the control condition necessary for responsibility, whatever that you know control condition is. Uh, I think that control condition, though, is compatible with determinism, as uh, as we'll see. Um, and so, yeah, I think determinism ultimately doesn't matter. I think it is true, but uh, I, I mainly hold to determinism for theological reasons and. Uh, via application, but I, I, I would really just classify my view as a compatibilist, simple compatibilist view. And that's really what I would be willing to argue for. If I was pressed, maybe I could go and try to uh, argue or defend something like a, a determinism. But um, I would hold to the Westminster of confession of faith. I'm Presbyterian, just like uh, Tyler is. And so I think it will be a good discussion.
0: All right, so on to me. Uh, my name is Tyler. Uh, most people watching this uh, probably uh, have seen the show before, since we're watching it on my on my feed. Um, but I am uh, I'm a reformed uh, Presbyterian. Um, I actually uh, became a Christian uh, in part. You know, one of one of the things that the means that God used was actually one of my atheistic professors in my philosophy undergrad program. So um, I, I uh, almost came to to biblical theology through the route of philosophy. So I think that it is uh, important for these discussions um, very much. Uh, and, and I and I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this discussion uh, because I think it's, um, I, you know, I think it's a more meaningful discussion. I think uh, having two, you know, Dan and Finney, um, b- who both are within kind of historic Arminian, uh, I think Dan, uh, a little bit more of a historic Arminian, Finney, you said Wesleyan, um, but both of those, you um, you know kind of kind of in the in the history uh the the historic armenian position um where a lot of times these conversations are dominated by uh by calvinists and provisionists or, or something along those lines and so i think this is going to be a much more much more interesting uh and and robust conversation so i'm looking forward to it um i think um without without we, we're each going to go around for for about five minutes each and, and and actually lay out a couple arguments for why we hold the position we hold um uh, but just to, to state um uh, you know, really in broad strokes where I'm at, I, I am uh, a compatibilist. Uh, I do disagree with Colton that it's largely for philosophical reasons. Um, I, I actually think it's the other direction. I think that there are, um, there, there are certain, uh, biblical, uh, reasons why I think compatibilism is warranted, uh, in just that. I think we have examples where some, where certain instances are determined and they are, they are, uh, free, sufficient for, for the responsible, the responsibility of, of the agents. And so I think, uh, uh, I, I think, you know, d- just definitionally, if there's a single instance where they are compatible, then compatibilism is just definitionally true and incompatibilism is necessarily false. So uh, we'll, I'll lay out some of those as we go through. Um, so that that's us. That's the four of us. I'm looking forward to this conversation beyond, beyond the, the next, you know, uh, 20 minutes, five minutes each uh, for, for the audience, we don't really have a big structure. This isn't a formal debate. This is really, you're going to be listening in after, uh, we each give our couple minutes, you're going to be almost listening to a coffee talk between, between four guys, uh, who just, you know, we love the scripture. We love the Lord. We're, we're, we're trying to find truth. We're trying to better understand each other. Um, uh, and, and you can be a part of that conversation. So please, uh, in the comments, put your questions, uh, and we'll try to, you know, I'll try to pepper some of those in throughout the discussions, or we'll, we'll handle those, at the at the end. So uh, with that, uh, we'll continue back around the horn. Back to Dan, if you want to take about about five minutes and uh, and lay out a couple a couple reasons why you think that, um, that that libertarian incompatibilism is the view um, that is uh, most biblically faithful.
1: Sure. Um... Thank you for that. So, you know, as far as I would start with the, the passages that talk about choice in the Bible, right? And so there's some very famous ones at the end of Deuteronomy at the end of the given of the law, you know, um, you know, i've set before you uh, blessings and cursings life and death therefore choose life and live and that's in deuteronomy 30 19 um, at the entry to the promised land you know choose you this day whom you'll serve at the you know beginning of the wisdom literature and proverbs uh, you know it's because you have um, not chosen the right way that's why um, god is against you the, uh, um so the choice comes up at very key moments in scripture now um i think the the tendency to be is to say is well what exactly does choice mean and and it's, you know, being able to select between uh, possibilities, to, between things that you consider are possible. And the Bible does talk about deliberation in that sort of sense. You know, the, uh, like, 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 let's say, for example, uh, the king um, is trying to figure out, can he win the battle with um, 10,000 men against somebody with 20,000 men? So in the deliberation process, we consider things that are possibilities for us. And as soon as we determine that something is impossible, then we leave, leave it off and that's not even an alternative for us. So we're choosing between possible alternatives and that's just the normal everyday sense of, uh, determine, uh, of choice. So that seems to conflict with determinism, right? And the reason why is if, if something is determined, then it's necessary and the opposite is impossible. So it, it would seem that our deliberation is, is somewhere gone off track if we think two things are possible and we think only one thing can be possible, right? And everything else is impossible. So there, there seems to be some type of conflict in there. Um, but the scripture goes further than that. Right. So, you know, from a I'd say from a positive standpoint, I would just say that, the, you know, the language of choice itself um, conflicts with determinism and that it's it, it's so strongly ingrained that it does that it's almost as if the biblical writers should just give us a heads up. If they're going to say the word choice, but they still believe in to- you know determinism, they need to give us a heads up that they're using choice in some kind of weird way. Right. But they don't do that. There's never this compatibilist language. And, you know, uh, there's no one that goes off on, well, well, here's the conditional analysis of shoes and stuff like that. So it seems like it's brought to the text rather than um, from the text. But then there's two two other reasons, uh, at least two other reasons that we can see in the text of scripture, which is, um, and Finney alluded to it, and I think it's a great point, which is sometimes the scripture uses uh, incompatibilist language and statements. And so, john, uh, john 6 44 is a classic classic proof text for calvinism right and it says no man can come to me except the father who sends me draws him right and it definitely supports subtle depravity which finney and i hold um but it what's interesting is if you take off the soteriology hat step outside of tulip and get into the philosophy. What is Christ affirming here? Because he's saying people can't come to him. Well, why not? Is there a gun to their head? No, right? So there goes that type of compatibilist type language. Is there something physically wrong with them? Do they have a mental handicap? You know, are are they bound in change? Are they in a locked room? No, none of those things apply. Rather, it's just something that they can't do because they're not they don't have it in their capacity, and in the, in they're basically determined not to do that. Um, so that's the problem, right? So, so the scripture does use incompatibilist language at times and affirms the ability to do otherwise. And, for the, you know, you can take passages like 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 13. Um, no temptation is uh, overtaken as such, other than such which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will provide you a way of escape. Um, so that you may be able to bear it, right? So every time a Christian sins, they could have done otherwise, not on their own strength, but God enabled that alternative. So, um, that, you know, that that's the, uh, and then the third point is the compatibilist analysis itself. The conditional analysis itself has is fraught with difficulties. Um, so we don't think it's it's right to try to use the conditional analysis to interpret scripture. So I think that's uh, the case in a, in a nutshell. Uh, I don't want to go on too long.
0: Thank you. Penny,
2: to you, five minutes. Sure. Um, so I appreciate that Dan uh, approached the topic mainly from a scriptural perspective. Um, I, I would just echo his point points, and specifically uh, Christians having the ability to bear with temptation. Um, that seems to both of us to imply that they have the ability to do otherwise. I, I come from this, from a source incompatibilist view, more from someone who believes that the ability to do otherwise is necessary in every circumstance. And I think Dan might agree with that as well. Um, but I think here is an example of of, of incompatibilist free will, um, specifically with respect to believers. Um, I don't think the conditionalist analysis works in these kinds of contexts for two reasons. One, which Dan mentioned, I, I think it would be anachronistic um, as far as i can tell the concept of a conditional analysis of free will it was introduced into the reform tradition through amiraldianism as far as i can tell charles hodge actually attributed it to a part of amiraldianism which the helvetic consensus formula rejected which was partly authored by francis turton and a part of the one of those articles of of uh of the Helvetic consensus specifically states uh, that we, we find it to be a dangerous error to affirm that humans could believe in God for their salvation if they wanted to. So the so I think that traditionally, even, even if you look at all, all the way back to Augustine and uh, I think it was in, in Charidian, he writes, and I've, I've got this quoted. I promise I didn't write an entire script, but I've got these little bullet points here. He wrote, quote, even if he wishes to live according to the law, he is vanquished. He, man, sins knowingly and is brought under the spell and made the slave of sin. This is the second state of man. And so the second stage taught by Augustine and, and traditionally, I think, in Christian theology is that humans lack the ability categorically and conditionally to, to obey the law. Uh, the conditional analysis of free will was, it was a late cover in the reform tradition and then it was popularized by Jonathan Edwards who uh, argued that uh, drew this distinction between you know natural ability and moral ability. Um, but I think that the, the, the pr- well, one problem with co-opting conditional analysis which is which has its origins I think in, in Hume, um, and and later in Hobbes, um, and, and in the modern century, classical compatibilists like A.J. Ayer is that secular compatibilists are not laboring under theological commitments that Christians have. They, they're not laboring under a commitment to, for example, total depravity or total inability. Um, and I think that it, the Reformed concept, the, the Reformed tradition in particular, adds additional commitments that are that make it even harder to uh, reconcile with con- a conditional analyses of free will um, the reformed conception of original sin for example the Federalist picture uh, dictates that humans are born totally depraved as a penalty of their guilt um, which they are imputed um, as a result of Adams sin so it so, to unpack that, Adam sins, and all people who are born after Adam are born imputed his guilt. Um, if any kind of free will were necessary for moral responsibility, suppose we take a conditional analysis of free will, which was uh, popularized by Jonathan Edwards. So, a person is mo- only morally responsible for an event if he could have prevented it in a conditional sense, and he could have prevented it in a conditional sense had he. Um, it, so long as, had he wanted to, he would have. But, but with respect to conditional ability, no one is able, even in a conditional sense, to prevent Adam from uh, committing a sin, from from committing the primal sin or whatnot. Um, and and so it seems that on, on a consistently thoroughgoing Reformed conception of original sin, even the condi- a conditional analysis would not be necessary a conditional analysis of free will would not be necessary for moral responsibility. So, so I think that reformed compatibilism and secular compatibilism are very odd bedfellows. They're, they're, they have different projects that are divergent, and I, I don't think that reformed compatibilists like Bignon, for example, have adequately taken into consideration the contours of Christian theology, our commitments to total depravity, and in particular, reformed commitments to, to doctrines like the doctrine of original sin and imputed guilt. Um, another argument, purely from a more philosophical perspective, um, which has gained a lot of traction in the modern um, in modern times is called the consequence argument. And some versions of this can go, goes back to early times with Irenaeus arguing against Valentinus, but in its modern form, the, the essential core of the consequence argument is that you, if you are not responsible for the cause of an event, then you can't be responsible for its consequence. So uh, if I am unable to prevent some P and prevent P from causing Q, then I am unable to prevent Q. Bignon uses an example in his book of a golfer who's out in a golf course and out in the distance he sees um. A woman about to get mugged. And let's stipulate that she he couldn't prevent her from being mugged, even if he wanted to. And let's stipulate to one additional fact that as a result of the mugging, uh, she suffers a stroke. Well, it seems to follow that if she's unable to prevent the mugging and also unable to prevent the mugging from causing the stroke, then she's unable to prevent the stroke itself. And so, and and here's where Van and Wagen's version of this, the consequence argument leads us to. Given determinism, whether we're speaking of a theological or natural variety, every event, Q, stands in some relation to some prior event, P, such that we are unable to prevent P, we're unable to prevent P from causing or entailing Q, and therefore we're unable to prevent Q. Um, And I think that's a, it's it's a fairly strong argument there are interesting, plausible uh, objections that have been made. I find that the the, the evidence in support of the argument, um, you know, overwhelms overwhelmingly uh, is stronger than its objections, and so that's that's one of the re- one of the main reasons I would I would support an incompatibilist view of free will.
0: Thank you, Finny. Uh, Colton, did you want to go first, or did you want me to go first?
3: I can go first. It's fine. All right. So yeah, as I said earlier, I think uh, definitions are always good. And so for me, uh, free will is the control condition for necessary for responsibility. And so whatever that control condition is depends. But uh, I think uh, I tend to think, as a compatibilist, that control condition is going to be compatible with determinism. Obviously, Dan and Finney don't think so. But I. With regards to what the control condition is, I'm kind of indifferent uh, because I think the, the consequence argument is a strong one. I do tend to take being on side that it is question begging. I know I've talked to Finney about this before. Um, but even if I were to say that it wasn't uh, question begging, I still don't think it works in the way that it should work. So let's just say I take more of a leeway approach. So if I said that the control condition uh, had to do with some sort of leeway, and I said it was, you know, the conditional analysis is necessary for responsibility um, rather than the categorical, I think, I still think it falls because I don't think that the Vint and Wagons uh, argument specifically details exactly what, you um, what kind of ability there is. Now, if I were to concede all of that, I still think I could say something like a dispositional analysis. So this is uh, something that's been kind of articulated by newer newer philosophers, uh, specifically uh, Kadri V. Velen. And so she has an amazing book, and I'm really di- digging into it. And it's just basically uh, has to do with these wide and narrow abilities. I think that's Uh, a good, a good distinction between these different kinds of abilities here. So even if I were to concede that the conditional and categorical don't quite cut it, I think we could still say though, that there is a, some, something that has to do with responsibility and some sort of connection, uh, with regards to a disposition or the state of affairs at that time. And so I tend to think that a disposition entails some sort of conditional. Um, and we can talk about that and what we, why, why I think that later, but um, that's for leeway. And for sourcehood, um, again, I'm kind of indifferent. Uh, I don't think that we are as compatibilist as, as I'm a compatibilist that we are. And because I believe in determinism, I don't think we are ever the efficient cause of our action. Um, I think at best we are the formal cause of our action. And I think that ties very nicely with Aristotelian um, uh, causation and also uh, contemporary views such as guidance control. So I do hold that moderate reasoned responsiveness is necessary. I'm indifferent whether or not I want to say it's sufficient. But I want to probably say 75% yes. (laughs) Uh, I know I'm not giving you guys a lot to work with, but I'm sorry. But I, I do think it is very, very as close as possible to a good robust theory of moral responsibility. Um, Yes, I think it has some flaws. McKenna, Paraboom, et al. has shown some significant flaws in it. And I think Fisher and Raviza, I believe specifically with regards to moderate reasons responsiveness and mechanism individualization. They've conceded some of that stuff. Uh, I think Preciado has maybe formed a little bit, especially with regards to his census divinitatis in replace of the mechanism, individualization, individualization, but, um, again, we can talk about that. All that to say is I think guidance control, if leeway doesn't necessarily, um, do the job, I do, I do think guidance control comes in and kind of saves the day here, and I don't think that they are incompatible. So I don't think that if I hold leeway, I can't like conditional or dispositional analysis. I don't think I can't hold to something like sourcehood, And the reason is, is because, you know, the original form formulation of guidance control has to do with uh, Frankfurt style arguments, not to say that they're necessary for the formulation of guidance control. But obviously, Fisher is a champion of Frankfurt's argument. So. Uh, I do think that Frankfurt with the alternative and uh, actual sequence, they have built in already a dispositional or a conditional sort of scenario where if the relevant reasons were uh, uh, given to, you know, uh, to Jones, he would do otherwise uh, in the um, alternative sequence. But it's just the case that They weren't relevant to jones so this is exactly what he did i think the alternative sequence even though it doesn't actually happen is very similar to the conditional analysis or you know the the dispositional analysis just because it posits some possible world that we can look at and peer into how those reasons are relevant to jones and how they are relevant specifically to his freedom and responsibility though they don't need to be in the actual sequence i think that's i think that's Uh, good stuff because um, I know some people want to say that leeway and sourcehood are not necessarily at least on the compatibilist sense not necessarily compatible and I, I disagree with that I think you can mix the two all that to say is I don't actually and I think Tyler disagrees with me on this last time I checked but I don't actually use Frankfurt's argument as an argument for compatibilism and here's why I think the flickers really does torpedo uh, the Frankfurt's argument. So, at least for me, I'll be using the Frankfurt uh, style argument as a defense of compatibilism. I don't see it as an argument for compatibilism um because I, I just um, the the flicker is just too powerful for me. It's always going to be there, even if it's little, little, small, little flicker. And even though we can, I can maybe concede with with room and Fisher. That's not robust. I mean, even Tempe, a source and compatibilist maybe up Finney's aisle want to say that, yeah, it's not robust, but still flicker, still there. (laughs) So to me, it's, uh, I don't like using Frankfurt's argument as an argument for compatibilism. Um, So I think definitionally, I would, the reason why I'm a compatibilist is because I, and I'm gonna raise some of the questions with you two uh, after um, we're all done here, but I think definitionally with regards to original sin, And um, uh, God's impeccability that Binyan has raised, similar but different. Um, I think that compatibilism best fits the data, especially with regards to prevenient grace. I don't see how you can hold to prevenient grace and still an incompatibility thesis. Um, And so I'm looking forward to discussing uh, my my views on that. But I think I took up too much time, so I'll let Tyler go to town.
0: That's all right. Um, so I, I will try to be, I'll try to be quick, um, and speak fast. Um, I think one of the things that I, that, that I want to do a little bit different than the three of you is, um, you all, I think have gone from bottom up from what is freedom and tried to work your way up. Um, my, the way that I came to this is really, is really top down. It, It really is asking the questions, um, about kind of the, the broader metaphysics, uh, of, of the actual world, um, of God's creation of God's creational activity, um, and, and things like that. So I, I tend to look at these things from a much more top-down perspective. Um, and and an understanding when we talk about compatibilism and incompatibilism, I take it that, it, and this is just, it seems to be a trivially true of the definition. Incompatibilism is just the principled position that anything that's determined cannot, can, it just is intrinsically in principle contradictory with anything that's free, sufficient for any type of responsibility. Those two things are just in principle contradictory. And so I think that that's a very strong claim. And I think that if we even have warrant to think that there is a, a single exception to that, or we have warrant to think that that principle is too strong and we don't hold, um, then we can affirm compatibilism just definitionally. Um, but I think that I can go through and give multiple examples where we do have exceptions uh, and, and uh, to, to that principle. And as such, incompatibilism would be necessarily false. Because it just, in principle, is not the case that those two things are incompatible. So I'll give I'll give a couple of those. Um, uh, again, coming down from metaphysics. So I, I take a very strong view. I think I think most of us here are classical theists to some to some degree. I mean, being you two being historic Arminians, Colton and I, Colton and I, I know are classical theists. Um, and I take it that when we talk about God's knowledge, whether that's Molinist, you know, uh, knowledge, whether that's you know simple foreknowledge, whether that's uh, you know a decretive knowledge like like what we would have in Calvinism. Whatever that is, we take it that God is immutably omniscient, that God cannot fail in his knowledge. It's not even, it's almost he's impeccable in his knowledge, that his knowledge, it's not even possible that he be wrong. So I take it that when God created this world, none of us here are open theists. So the way out for this may be open theism. But I take it that when God created this world, he had exhaustive knowledge of all future facts. And so it cannot be the case that his knowledge that at time T1, John would do X. It is not metaphysically possible for that knowledge to be wrong. To say that John at T1 has the categorical ability, this metaphysically real ability to choose not X, is just to say that it's, it's just a synthetically identical thing to say that it is possible for God's knowledge to be wrong. Um, so I just take it that that's an absurdity. So so I, I, I think that I would need a very, very strong case to be made that it is even possible that one of God's creation uh, could even possibly, whether or not he actually ever could bring it about, uh, but has the real metaphysical possibility to falsify God's knowledge, which would mean it actually wasn't knowledge in the first place. It was a belief that ended up being false because knowledge just is true belief. Uh, I I, I take it that the metaphysics of that um, is that that person may have the conditional ability in the actual sequence of events, but they do not have the categorical ability in any metaphysically real sense in the actual world because it is not possible to falsify the knowledge of God. Um, So I take it that that metaphysical approach to the knowledge of God out of his creative decree. I also think that God in creating this world um so you know Daniel Molinus I don't know how much it'll come up um uh, but if god had had the range of feasible options let's imagine that there were only just for the sake of argument there's only two feasible options and they are they they have zero overlap in their true propositions just for the sake of argument god in determining which world he would create was the sufficient cause to determine the truth value of those propositions in the actual world, such that if that, such that if God had chosen to create the other world, then the other truth values would have been would have been true. That doesn't mean that God is causally determining whatsoever is true, but it does mean that some form of theistic determinism: God is exhaustively determining what will be true in the actual world as opposed to what will not be true or what will not be true and what will be true, say, counterfactually. Um, so I take it that that, is, uh, that that is a kind of determinism and that is compatible with us being free. It is determined that God has determined that in this world, in the actual world, I would freely do such and such. And so as such, it is determined in a meaningful sense and I am sufficiently free uh, in 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 the actual world for my moral responsibility. As such, that's compatible and therefore incompatibilism is necessarily false. Um, the last two that i that I'll bring up very, very quickly, uh, I, and I asked this before is that all of us here on this call we hold to we we all affirm broadly the Chicago statement of inerrancy. Um, that is, we all affirm some kind of of uh, verbal plenary inspiration where every word of God is inspired by God. Uh, in a way that is not, say, how God on a Molina scheme would have brought about Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Right? They, 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 they are. God has determined the content of His Word in such a way that it is attributable to God as His Word, every word. Um, I think that also though, as Protestants, we don't take a dictation view. And as such, we can say that Moses or whoever we take to be the author of Genesis was a literary genius and to be praised for their composition of the book of Genesis. As such, we have the word of God itself being something that is determined Carried along by the Holy Spirit, and yet the human authors are sufficiently free and responsible to be praiseworthy for their literary genius. I think that that is an example of something that is determined and free, sufficient for praise. Um, uh, and so, compatibilism again, it, it, we have a warranted uh, reason to believe in compatibilism. The last one, I think, is just that we have the crucifixion and we have passages such as Acts 2 and Acts 4, uh, we have Acts 22 to 24. Uh, which talks about the, the 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 crucifixion, Jesus being delivered over by the predetermined plan, the praeridzo, the foreordained uh, plan of God that He was crucified, and yet the godless men put Him to death. They were they were blameworthy. In in Acts four twenty seven, uh, it says, "For truly, in this city they were gathered together against your holy." Peter is praying to God, saying this: "They were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate." along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. Um, And so I, I, I do not think it could have been otherwise. Otherwise, God's predestining plan would have been undermined. Now, we can say that in some other counterfactual world, God could have predestined, and then that plan would have been different. But we're talking about in the actual world what they could have done And what they did is exactly what God had predetermined, predestined them to do. And so we have another example of where they were responsible, they were blameworthy, they were morally wicked, and yet they were doing what God had predestined for them to do. Um, And so I think we have, and there's more examples, I think we have lots of examples. So even if we point to choice passages where it does seem to be a choice, that's fine. Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Jews had a choice, had a conditional choice and so, simply pointing to choice passages, I don't think undermined these ones, which seem to clearly indicate that something can be both determined uh, and free. Um, and so, uh, I'll, I'll end with that. From here, we didn't really plan where, for it to go. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if any, if any of you, uh, one of you, want to, you know, Colton, if you want to to pick up on something that either Dan uh, or Finney said, or if either of you want to start on something that we said. Um, and go from there, I will I will turn it over uh, to to you all about, uh, you know, what would be what you know, what what's what's a good what's a good launching point now.
3: I I had some questions. Um, If you guys are okay with answering some of the questions, some of them are clarifying questions. And then after I get the clarification, I want to try to go to town if you're okay with that. What do you guys think? Sounds good. Okay. So, um, do you both, you both said you believe in total depravity, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yes.
4: Um,
3: and Okay. And so, and then I don't know, Dan, do you believe in provenient grace? I know Finney said he does, but yes. Okay.
1: Yeah.
3: Fantastic. And then, uh, I don't know, Dan, if you have a specific flavor of libertarian freedom, uh, in mind because you weren't really clear, but I know I'll ask Fini for right now. Um, so source compatibilism. do you hold more to virtue libertarianism then uh, of the Tempe variety or something different? Yeah. Okay. So uh, Dan, uh, I, I just, another clarifying question. Do you have any specific flavor of libertarian freedom that you have in mind or no?
1: I'm um, mostly a, a source in- incompatibilist as, as well. So I think maybe where we differ, I, I, I seem to remember you said uh, free will is a control condition for responsibility. And mm-hmm. I, I don't. I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. So the way I would say it is, you know, that sourcehood is a necessary condition for responsibility and sourcehood is is primary, more important than leeway. So I would say that somebody can be responsible, you know, as long as sourcehood is the case. But as far as leeway, um, you know, as far as freedom, they need leeway. So, um, you know, th- th- and those two can come apart. So let's take, for example, a biblical case of Pharaoh you know, it's it's quite possible that at the moment that he's being hardened, he didn't have leeway, he didn't have free will or alternative possibilities at that point. Um, now, prior to his hardening, when he was hardening his own self, when mm-hmm. God was just you know confronting him, maybe yeah, he did have leeway and alternative possibilities at that point. So you know that responsibility tracks to sourced, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, alternative possibilities or leeway tracks to freedom, if that if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so um, I guess how my first question, I guess we can start like how can maybe I misheard you, but how could someone do otherwise? If how can someone categorically do good? If they are depraved? Or do you disagree that they can categorically do good? that's for either one of i don't really care uh so how can someone categorically do good given their depravity
1: um finney if you want to take i mean i'm happy to take that that. sure
2: so i'll i'll just give in my my two cents i think that i would draw a distinction between civil good and moral good i think that because of divine grace humans are not as bad as they could be and total depravity doesn't entail that humans are as bad as they could be but i do believe that with respect to any given act Uh, Humans are categorically and conditionally unable to perform any morally good deed fully with its with true having true affections. Um,
4: I
0: don't know. He he told me before. or He told the group before this that he might have some internet issues. Uh, Um,
1: I can finish you there. Can you? Yeah, I'm sorry.
3: You're cutting out. Sorry
2: about that. Uh, yeah, I'm having yeah, sorry, my my computer was made in the Stone age. And <laughs> I wish that my I, I keep getting calls about my car's warranty. No calls about my
0: uh, computer's warranty. <laughs> sorry, can anyone still hear me? We, yeah. we can hear you. There's a little lag between your video and your audio. Um, maybe if okay. it happens again, you can try uh, uh, restarting and and coming back in, but okay. oh, keep keep going.
2: So, so yeah like I, I I think my my answer to Colton's question would be I, I don't believe uh humans can can do true fully genuinely moral good things in their natural predisposition uh, without grace
4: okay
0: uh, can, I a, can I ask a follow-up to that um it correct correct me if I'm wrong and maybe maybe I misunder maybe I misunderstood this um but it, but it seems because you gave the, the consequence argument that if if they aren't responsible for the cause of the action then they aren't responsible for the outcome of the action right so it seems that the the cause of our sin just is our total just is our total you know inability to, to choose God it's our total depravity um, that 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 is that that's sufficient to cause any of our action to not be righteous right. But then but then it seems that we're blameworthy for our sin. But so, so so would you say that that our being blameworthy for sin in conjunction with total depravity just is a defeater for the consequence argument?
2: No, so I think that so from a Wesleyan view, and I and Dan might have a different view, we haven't spoken about this particular um, the the whole scheme of grace, responsibility, and free will, um, I think shakes out differently. So essentially, I think sin exists and people can do evil, sinful things. But from the Wesleyan view, humans are not responsible for their inherited condition. Um, and I think Oliver Crisp made a case already, urging that Reformed Christians hold to this view as well. They're also not responsible for inclinations. Uh, they're not responsible for uh, morally culpable for... Um, uh, for uh, yeah. neglect and things like that. And they're not morally responsible for sinful deeds unless and yeah. until the divine. Yeah. Was that me? Oh, was that closing the time? All right. Unless and until they reject the divinely provided remedy for sin in Christ. And so um, the church of the Nazarene, which is a church that I've been uh, flirting with on and off for a couple of years, um, the, they have uh, in their articles of faith, they actually say just that. And this is a point that I, I noticed in Binyan's book um, excusing sinners and blaming God. He, he kind of said, well, if you're a minion, then you also have to reject libertarian free will for for non-believers. And we agree, but I think that I think the difference is that with uh, within the context of at least for Wesleyans, um the mechan- the the scheme of sin, moral responsibility, grace are slightly different than what you might. How you might view them within the reform tradition. Maybe,
0: maybe this is maybe this is a good time. I, you know, I don't want to derail this too much, but I maybe it'll uh, this might help me kind of understand where you're coming from. Um, and that is, let let me maybe I can articulate what I think the difference between, say, Dan as a historic Arminian would hold on like prevenient grace and illumination, and and a Wesleyan would. Because I maybe Dan can shake his head yes or no. I, I'm not sure he would agree with what you just said. Um, but, I, but I take it that, that one of the difference between, you know, in historic, historic Arminianism, um, oftentimes they're, they're accused of being Calvinists, right? Because prevenient grace is still a special working of the Holy Spirit upon the elect. It's just that, that the, the main difference is that it's not, that that it's resistible. Um, it's not irresistible. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it's not extra ex, ex, ex oper operato, you know, the, the, right. The, of the Holy Spirit. If I understand Wesleyanism correct, and kind of more like evangelical Arminianism, prevenient grace is not so like targeted at the individual. It kind of becomes this, uh, and I and I didn't I didn't come up with this phrase. This was I, I forget the the actual Arminian that was at ETS giving the paper, but prevenient grace almost becomes this like illuminating fog over all of humanity, um, such that 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 initial condition um, of uh, of of total depravity. It's not that it's removed, but that that kind of the the blamelessness of it is is removed, and now you're culpable because now you you could almost do uh otherwise and and choose the good because that that kind of that fog of pervenience has gone over all humanity do I, do I do I have that that right between between you two or am I missing something um
1: I mean, I I agree with a whole lot of what Finney had to say. I mean, I'd probably uh, say some different things and say things in different ways. So in in response to your first question, in terms of the consequence argument, I think I would say that the consequence argument deals with freedom and leeway and alternative possibilities, whereas um, total depravity is more so linked into moral responsibility and sourcehood Right. And so, in some sense, I would say that that's kind of a category error to conf, conflate those two. And I know um, that may be one of our core differences here today. And I think, I, and I already touched on that with Colton, because Colton's uh, point, I'm like said, that free will is a control, control condition for moral responsibility, whereas I tend to split those because I'm a sourcehood incompatibilist. So, I, I think that's the first thing. And then, as far as, you know, on grace, you know, absolutely we're, we're totally depraved we need God's grace and it works um in in some ways like you said I mean I, I would instead of calling it a fall I say, a fog I'd call it the conviction of the Holy Spirit with regard to the law which is uh our schoolmaster, which brings us to leads us to Christ so everyone has a conscience and God is using that conscience and the Holy Spirit is convicting people through that conscience and leading them towards a um realizing that they're a sinner and that they need a savior and that, that they can't save themselves and that they're stuck in their sins and they um, cry out, you know, um, God, please save me. Right. And so I think that, you know, that's, that's the fog. <laughs> At least in my view, that's, that's the fog. Yeah. I feel the that there's
2: uh, a, Oh, it looks like Colton's left us. Um, yeah, he's Tyler, dropped, you're yeah. muted. Yeah. He dropped. Uh, he's back. There he is. Oh. I I am aware there's a distinction between some Reformed dominions and and Wesleyans in that Reformed dominions believe that prevenient grace is specifically applied when the person hears the gospel. And this seems to be in line with what many Calvinists teach as well. Um, In Grudem's systematic theology, he also teaches that, that grace is received when the elect hears the gospel. Whereas on the Wesleyan view, it's, things are less clear and, and things are a little bit um, less clearly defined in that grace can be provided throughout one's, per, one's life. And so Wesley took this view that it, it occurs upon birth. I think more recent Methodist theologians like Ben Witherington and Tom Oden deliberately refrain from um, putting, putting grace into, into such categories as to, as to the manner and when and how and so Tom Moden would say grace, God gives uh, grace to people throughout their lives or at some point in their lives. Um, it's it's really difficult to, to 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 narrow down. That seems to be one one of the distinctions between what Tyler is describing as historic and you know
0: Wesleyan, Hermanianism. Well, how, how about that? So uh, I, I know Colton was was going somewhere with his questions. Colton, maybe, maybe one or two more questions and then we'll 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 flip it. I think Dan and, and Finney have been. Uh, on the receiving end, we'll, we'll you know let them let them ask us some some questions, uh, and then yeah. do, audience, do audience, and then maybe we'll revert for another round, and then do audience again, and, and try to mix it up a little bit.
3: So I guess my main uh, issue is is like so. Let's just say we take a provenient grace model that's restricted, uh, so that which means let's just say from T six to T ten, God gives. You some some uh, unregenerate sinner, prevenient grace to believe the gospel. So it seems to me that this is what the Armenian model entails. From T zero to T five, they could not do otherwise. Namely, they could only have the liberty of contrariety. So that means they only have the low-level actions of just choosing sinful options, whether that's moral or civil. Civil, I, I would say even a civil option could be sinful in God's eyes. So let's just say from T0 to T5, he only has at his disposal sinful options. But then God, you know, enlightens him, uh, gives him provenient grace from T6 to T10. So now he has what we can call the liberty of contradiction. So now he can actually contradict his own sinfulness by the grace of God and choose to to accept God's provenient grace or choose to believe the gospel. But let's just say he he rejects it and then from T11 to T whatever until he dies he he no longer has it. Maybe he has the same prevenient grace again later on, maybe he doesn't. Here's here's the problem I have. When you're at when you're at t0 to t5 the the agent could not do otherwise namely he could not contradict his own sinfulness yet we still want to say or at least i would assume that the armenian wants to say that you know that person's morally responsible even though he could not do otherwise because you guys believe in a robust form of total depravity so i think you're committed to that and that's fine i would too but then when we get to something like Uh, like I think what Tyler was saying with the consequence argument I don't see how you can mend the two together or better yet if at one time or another that that agent needed the contradiction in order to form his moral character in what was so of the Tempe variety or virtue libertarianism he needed to non-derivatively form his moral character in such a way so that Uh, At a later time, he can derivatively be responsible. That's what virtue libertarianism entails. But he did not from from T0 to T5, he doesn't have those options available. He doesn't have the righteous options available to him because of his total depravity. But because of God's grace from T6 to T10, he has those righteous options available to him. So let's just say he chooses not to. But yet, yeah, you would still hold him responsible from the earlier time, even though he didn't form his moral character in the way that he should have with regards to virtue libertarianism. But yet, you would still hold him morally responsible. So, to me, it, I hope that makes sense. I hope what I'm trying to pinpoint is that to me, there's this small inconsistency with the model of grace mixed with this idea of source incompatibilism. I agree that you don't always have to have leeway available but i also agree along with tempe that leeway is still necessary at one point in the agent's life and if that one point if in order to form that moral character he needs the liberty of contradiction so the 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 ability to to transcend his total depravity and actually do something righteous he cannot do unless given prevenient grace and even if he rejects it you would still hold him morally responsible for and after the provenient grace so to me that is just picture perfect uh compatibilism not incompatibilism because what it is is you're saying though he could not do otherwise of a higher level action like the liberty of contradiction he still has a lower level actions but he could not do otherwise yet he's still free and responsible that's what the compatibilist enterprise at base level wants to say So I know that there's similarities between source incompatibilism and just just basic compatibilism, so we can parse out the differences. I think this is an inconsistency here, so maybe I got something wrong in your model, but uh, I would like to hear from what you guys have to say.
1: So I obviously recognize that uh free will is most interesting at those crucial moments especially the decision to trust in jesus or not trust in jesus right that that's when you know free, free will becomes really really important And it's a lot less important when you're choosing, you know, what to have for breakfast or what shoes to wear or whatever. Right. So, but the, the totally depraved person still is making choices. He still has alternative possibilities, but the sourcehood is the primary reason for his responsibility at that time because he is the source of his actions and that's why he's responsible. But before, so you said from T1 to T5, when he's, he hasn't received that provenient grace, at least not provenient grace to the level where he can, uh, believe the gospel, let's say,
4: mm-hmm.
1: there's still a lot of preparatory steps that that the Holy Spirit is working on with that person in their life. In fact, I think he's probably working with people wherever they are for, you know, most of their lives, right? And so, you know, it might be um, recognizing that they're a sinner, trying to, to do their do good works or trying to be a good person or whatever the case might be. All that stuff might be happening at T1 to T5. Now, the odd thing is it's inverted right? Because you would think, oh, well, if he does good things, then he's more likely to say yes to the gospel. But it's actually the opposite, right? It's the more he struggles with his sin, the more he, they realize that they're a savior. But the but the the way people respond to the way God is dealing with them in T1 to T5, which is a form of earlier prevenient grace, um, even if they can't believe the gospel yet, they still could either resist God's uh, conviction through the law or not resist God's conviction through the law. They can still harden their hearts or not harden their hearts, or that sort of thing. So that's what's going on for T1 through T5. That's... Um, you know, still, still a bit interesting. Even if that mm-hmm. T6 moment that you talked about is the the most interesting. But again, I, I come back to, um, you know, when it comes to the consequence argument, that's really it is focused on leeway. It's uh, focused on alternative possibilities. It's not really focused on sourcehood, as far as I can tell. Anyways, um, that, that's my piece. Uh, if any, maybe you want to uh, comment on that as well. Yeah, I mean,
2: I don't want to echo what Dan said, but I I essentially agree with him. Uh the the specific in, ingredient that's missing, Colton, I think is is what I said earlier about the relation between responsibility and grace. And before I mentioned the articles of faith of the Church of Nazarene, and I have it in front of me now, which I'll just quote it states, we believe that original sin differs from actual sin. In that it constitutes an inherited propensity to actual sin for which no one is accountable, until its divinely provided for remedy is neglected or rejected. And so, when you, I, I would agree with you from T zero to I think it was T five or so, when the person is unable to do otherwise. And and you know in the real world, depending on when God's when God gives grace and when God enables a person to respond to the Spirit, it's it it may it may change the timeline, but apart from that, they're not responsible. Once God gives grace and once they reject the divinely provided remedy for sin, that is when they're held responsible and 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 so given that, so so the verse that Dan mentioned earlier with respect to like one first Corinthians 10:13, you know we we have the ability uh, through divinely provided grace to avoid temptation. And we we are able to bear with it. It's once we are able to bear with it, um, and yet we persist in 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 neglecting it that we are culpable for that rejection. Um, I think that you know, Colton, you made a point that I would like to follow up with when you said you believe some leeway is necessary, even on a source compatible source incompatibles view, and I, I I agree. So so the term leeway. Uh, for those of you who are watching, uh, it just simply means the ability to do otherwise. That's my understanding of it. Um, in in the
0: categorical sense.
2: You could also understand, I suppose, in a conditional sense. But yeah, I think in, in Tempe's view, he's a source incompatibilist. So he yeah. would understand it in categorical terms. And my understanding for Colton is that you believe that some leeway is necessary, but not in a categorical sense, right?
3: Um, so when I had, so I'm I'm doing an internal critique here. So if I would adopt Tempe's view, it is, yes, it's going to be a categorical sense. And he himself thinks, regardless of what I think about it, he thinks that you need to have some sort of weak flicker available to the agent. I don't know how this is where I would come in. I don't think a weak flicker could even provide that level of moral development that he's trying to get at in his later work, his philosophical uh, theology work. So I don't know how he can mend the two together. And that's what I struggle with Tempe with. But I still would say, based on his view, that's what he thinks. You need some sort of non-derivative leeway um, uh, option available to you at an earlier time in order to freely form your moral character to what it is at a later time. And that later time obviously doesn't require leeway anymore because now you are freely formed and moral character, which basically makes your character such that it can't do other than what it's doing at the time it is now. Um, And I'm okay with that. Uh, And that's why he says that, you know, leeway is not always necessary. Fine. But I still don't see how he can get from, you know, weak flickers based on the, the Franker style argument, the best he can get out of that is weak flickers to, oh, we can freely form our moral character. And so I kind of take that same idea and kind of implant it in the prevenient grace here. If you say that, oh yeah, like as Dan says, oh, the Holy Spirit's working from T1 to T5 in certain aspects, I, I struggle with seeing exactly how um because all the sinner can do is just sin it's completely in rebellion to god uh, i guess the sinner could recognize that they are a sinner because just like you know uh fallen angels recognize that they are fallen and that's not necessarily a good thing to recognize that you're fallen but i think um i guess dan says it gets a little sticky and that's why i wanted some clarification there on the armenian side so I still think it's it's very borderline compatibilistic to say that they couldn't do the higher level action of righteousness when in order to form your moral character, according to even Cain, you have to be able to contradict your own action. So if we wanna take something like Cain's um, uh, view, which is primarily a source of view as well, not, not Tempe's view, but Cain's view, he thinks you can do and should be able to contradict uh your your character in order to freely form it um obviously Tempe wants to say that but I don't know how he can get there when he has weak flickers um out of the Frankfurt style arguments and in the same way I would say with Prevening Grace I don't know how you guys get there
0: uh, well while we're waiting for Finney to come back in you, you've mentioned this a few times and I think all of us on the on the call know what you mean but maybe really fast you could uh, you, what what when you say a flicker and a weak flicker sure, what, yeah, yeah. What, what do you what do what do we mean when we <clears throat> when we say that this this won't be new to Finney, so maybe while we're waiting for him to come back we sure
3: yeah so a weak flicker comes from it's uh, originally coined uh, from John Martin Fisher who who loves frank for style arguments so i'll give a brief frank for style argument and then I'll, I'll i'll show you where the this flicker of freedom is what it, it's really called actually lies so i use this argument all the time uh so let's just say i want my wife to give me a coke from the fridge and so unbeknownst to her in order to ensure that i get my wife to get a coke from the fridge and not like some like lacroix or orange juice or something when she's sleeping the previous night i uh implant an electrode in her brain so i can digitally see on my ipad what she's thinking before she does so so she goes to the fridge and in the actual sequence of events So she actually gives me the Coke. I don't need to do anything. I didn't touch the iPad at all. I didn't change her brain at all. She gave me the Coke. She came in the room, she kissed me. I was so happy, I love her. Okay, so then the alternative sequence of events, what happens if she tries to go away from that? Well, what happens if she tries to choose to give me a LaCroix instead because she's witty and she wants to like mess me up? Uh, and she wants to just play games with me. That's fine, I can see that beforehand because I'm a good judge of things and I can see it on my iPad. So I say, oh wait, no, I can choose uh, for her to uh, choose the Coke instead. So in the alternative sequence, I would make sure that she chooses the Coke instead. The original Frankfurt argument says that though it doesn't seem like in either scenario, she could do otherwise, yet we intuitively want to say that she's morally responsible in the actual sequence. So here's the flicker. She could still decide like way back in the recesses of her mind still decide whether or not she should in fact give me the coke. And the idea is can I see that on my iPad? Do I have enough time to be able to say, "Oh, right before she decides to give me something else, I can I can change it." So if she decides to give me a Lacroix, I oh I change it so she goes to a Coke instead. Well, that deciding to do something else right before I change it—that's what we call the flicker, the flicker of freedom. So she still has alternatives, kind of implanted, even within this idea of uh, Frankfurt's argument. And so right. that's so what then, I keep. Meaning, uh, so, so the
0: so the criticism in is that the the Frankfurt examples. Are are good. And so, you know, to to a certain extent, but they they still seem to be built on this idea that somewhere in order for the thought experiment to even work, there has to be this kind of flicker of a leeway at some point way back in the recesses.
3: So that's what I think Tempe says. Yes. Um, Tempe says that you can't get around this idea that there's this what he calls a weak flicker. That flicker could just be literally nothing to do with moral responsibility. It doesn't actually do anything with regards to our responsibility, it doesn't ground our responsibility. But what it does instead is it just shows us that uh, that that flicker comes from what does ground our responsibility in that source. Of. So that's Tempe's argument. And my argument right now is I'm taking Tempe's argument, and I'm applying it to your idea of provenient grace. And I'm saying, it doesn't follow if you're gonna uh, hold to something like, Tempe's view, how can you get that weak flicker um, and produce something like a morally developed character outside of pervenient grace? And yet you would still hold him from T1 to T5 responsible, um, though he has just a bunch of weak flickers or conditionals to do good, but actually can't do good. To me, that's just compatible.
1: So, so uh Colton just um, for starters I, I agree with you that the Flickr shows a little bit of a problem with the Frankfurt analysis and I think also the tell right like how you know how can you tell that somebody's about to do something anyway so but let's set those aside and just uh, look at the consequent uh, no, I'm sorry the Frankfurt example at a higher level it seems that the point of the Frankfurt example is to say that you can be responsible without doing otherwise right without the ability to do others so, so you don't so someone can not have leeway and alternative possibilities, right? So if that's the case, like, how do you reconcile that with scriptural statements where we can do otherwise and with the, you know, that we can have, we make real choices?
3: So uh, I'd rather stick with uh, the question at hand first, but are you, are you willing to give up prevenient grace for, to hold on I think I already answered that one, but
1: I mean, so so again, from one to five. So before the prevenient grace, where someone can come to Christ, right? Uh They still have sourcehood, right? And the consequence argument hasn't, isn't really about sourcehood. It's about, um, uh, Leeway. leeway. That's one. Then two, they still have leeway with respect to, um, sinful alternatives. Yep. And then, um, you know, three, they still have God preparing them to get ready to say yes to the gospel through God's work in the law. So I, I think that is, at least as far as I can tell, you know, that that is the answer.
3: Right? How how does God just preparing them? That's not their own freely formed character. It would be God being the efficient cause of them freely forming their character, which we're happy to agree with as compatibilists, but as a libertarian incompatibilist, I don't see you like God would be the sufficient cause of their freely formed character.
1: So let's take, let's take someone who's experiencing the Holy Spirit's conviction through the law that they're a sinner, right? That's different than, you know, believe the gospel. It's just you, you lied. You shouldn't have lied. Right. So the Holy Spirit is convicting Mm -hmm. them at that point. They have the alternative possibilities of hardening their own heart or being convicted by the Holy Spirit,
3: is this from T one to T five?
1: From T one to T five, yeah. Before no, they can don't get to they the point, they
3: have that though, why would they have the option of uh conceding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? They would always deny that. Ah, okay. So
1: sense. fair, fair enough. So the question is, before. So it, it, I think you're you're looking at prevenient grace as one and only one thing, right? And it, it, it only relates to coming to Christ, the drawing the coming to Christ. No, so the prevenient grace covers all the preparation before a person comes to Christ. So from T1 to T5, the Holy Spirit is convicting a person of their sins and you know showing showing that the, their need for a Savior, and so that's all happening from T1 to T5. The, only person that doesn't have any prevenient grace at all, I would think, would be someone that is completely, totally uh, judicially hardened or something like that. Um, Yeah, so does that make make sense? So Uh, I I would still call what they're experiencing from one to four, one to five, that's a form of prevenient grace. It's just not the most interesting one, which is enablement to believe the gospel.
3: Well, that's fine, but I still don't see how it answers my question because— Even if you say it's a form of provenient grace, they couldn't do righteous options, yet we hold them morally responsible. So that's exactly what we would want to say. Just to
2: to jump in, I think that the idea is that they would be responsible. Responsibility comes in degrees and they would be held Mm -hmm. to the degree that they resist the spirit's conviction. Which, for which they have the ability of, of uh, to do otherwise, which is generated by the spirit, and so having acted to the spirits to the spirits leading, having yielded to the spirit, the spirits' actions are not, in a causal sense, sufficiently determining their action, precisely because they were able to resist it. So, be- because they could have done otherwise. Um, the spirit's prevenient grace uh, would not be causally sufficient and so and so in Galatians for example when Paul speaks of uh, the fruits of the spirit uh, the fruit of the spirit um, he does not leave us as passive participants or recipients he's he's he gives us a number of things that we need to do he says we need to keep in step with the spirit to follow the spirit to be led by the spirit and um, and these are things that we we do and we are responsible for that's the that's the specific measure of to which we are held responsible and i don't want to put words in dan's mouth but that that sure. would be how i would view
4: view it
3: so we, we can we agree though that from t1 to t5 they could not do any moral good namely love god which is like the moral good right to, to love justice and in loving justice you love god if the agent The unregenerate agent could not love God from T1 to T5. You're saying that they could do other types of sins, and these sins are a lesser degree. And to the degree that they're lesser, they're morally responsible. Is that what you're saying? Something like that?
1: I mean, I won't speak for Finney, but I I think so. That's so, right. But they're still responsible because of source ed, not because of that alternative possibility. Sure. Uh
3: that's fine. Uh that doesn't matter uh with regards to where I'm going. But um
0: So, cool, I so still, cool. let's do let's do let's do one more question. I want to get we have some audience questions that I wanna that I want to bring up. Sure here yeah, and then, and then flip it. So the, the, we we're, we're, we need to be on the receiving end for a little bit.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. There. I guess, I, you know, I'll just leave it there. I, I still don't see, and we, maybe we can bring it up later. I still don't see how none of that uh, actually um, solves the, I guess, quasi-dilemma I'm posing for you guys. But I'll leave it here because Tyler's right. So um, we can be on the receiving end.
0: Well, okay. So, in, in the meantime, we had some questions that came in. Um, so, uh, let, let's let's have these. So, this is a question from the provisionist perspective for uh, Dan and Finney. He wants to know if you agree or disagree. I think, if I'm reading this right, this is there's two statements, and I think they want to know if you agree or disagree with one or the other, or both, or neither. Um, so, they they want to know if you agree or disagree with this statement. We deny that Adam's sin. Resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will, or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. What, what is that a quote from? That's not the a quote. So I, I can't. I can't vouch for the phrasing of the questions. Uh, I, I'm. I'm with you. I'm not exactly sure how some of the. If I were you, I wouldn't be comfortable answering it because I'm not exactly sure how some of the terms are being used. Um, but this is. This was there. They want to know if you agree or disagree with this statement, and there's one more after this as well. So
1: I, I, this is from the traditionalist uh, statement, right? And there's traditionalism that preceded uh, provision, um, yeah, pro- provisionism or something like that. Okay. Um, I'd almost, I think there's maybe a way I could affirm it, but I, I'd be twisting it probably in the sense that they don't want me to twist it in. Because I'd say, well, you know, we deny that sin resulted in the incompassion can incapacitation of any person's free will? Well, if you mean by that that God didn't excise their free will out of them and they they don't have choices between evil options and they can't respond to God's grace freely, yeah, I agree. They retain their free will after the fall in those ways, but it is a there's a significant sense in which I can't agree with it, which means you know that um, we are incapacitated with respect to believing. The gospel without an external prevenient grace. So there's a very strong sense in which I would resist agreeing with that statement, but there's a sense in which I could. Yeah, we still have a free will between evil options or whatever. And then rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. Guilty in what sense? You know, like if they mean like it's like an actual crime, like I didn't eat the apple, right? So in that sense, it's not a um, an action base. So maybe there's some loose sense in which I could affirm this sort of thing. But um, it's certainly not the way I would express myself. Um, and I um, I think this was written by Eric Hankins, if I if I remember correctly. And I suspect if I sat down with a cup of coffee and talked this through with him, I'd end up disagreeing with him on what he meant by this statement. So I'll leave it at that.
2: Yeah, I would just—I I agree with Dan, and just to put it really shortly, I disagree with the first part of the sentence. I—I I agree that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will. I—I um, I do agree that it did not render any person guilty, so I reject imputed guilt. But I agree with original sin in the broader tradition of of inherited sin, um, ancestral sin. So. I reject that that first part of that statement, and therefore I reject the statement.
0: Yeah, I think this is a good example where you know, like I said, the the lead-in that you know, you you two coming from a you know historic historic Armenian positions and Wesleyan positions um, are gonna are gonna differ greatly from the conversations that a lot of people are used to with uh, with provisionists uh, on this. So um, let me go down. Let's hide that one. Um, Let's see. Oh, there was a question for for you, Colton, uh, for Michael Faber. Um, since Romans 2, 14 to 16 says that unbelievers without the law do the things of the law, and this shows knowledge of the law and their conscience accuses and defends them, how do they not know? I think this was in reference to something you had said uh, in your cross-examination of, uh, of, of Finney.
3: Um, I don't really know what he means by how do they not know. I would just say... Yes, they do the things of the law. I like Finney's civil and moral uh, good distinction. I would still affirm to that. But it within their civil good, we say it's good horizontally. It's not civil good with regards to God. So while we may not steal horizontally, we are still, con- and even though we're unregenerate, we're still sinful in the sense that we're, we're stealing from God and not giving him his due His due glory specifically in loving him and giving glory to him in whatever that action is. So though we can still do things of the law, like civilly, we cannot do things of the law uh, morally. And so I think that's what Romans 2 is actually saying. And so, yes, we do know God um, of of in our hearts because we know uh, what is good internally and what is not good. Namely, we shouldn't steal and we shouldn't kill and. We, we should love each other as ourselves, 10 Commandments stuff. But at the end of the day, we can never actually categorically, um, and maybe Finney's right, conditionally uh, uh, love God through that unregenerate nature. We have to be changed. I think it's an irresistible change. They think it's more like provenient grace. So I don't know if that answered the question, yeah, but yeah. that's how I would phrase that's- it.
0: I think I would add, too, I, I mean, I, I think all four of us from from broadly, and you know, because all four of us come from broadly Augustinian traditions. I, I mean, I, I think all of us would look at this and, and have a problem with how uh, Faber has actually summarized this verse. Um, because the the verse actually doesn't say that they that shows that they have knowledge of the law. Right. It says that they, they do the requirements uh, and so they become a law unto themselves. Um, and that, and that this almost, this almost shows that, you know, they, are, they are, uh, this goes to almost like a, like a natural law type of type of view or something along those lines. And that they're, 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 they're guilty even of the law to themselves. Not, not just, you know, th- this isn't actually an exonerating uh, passage. So, yeah uh, um, yeah, yeah. I yeah, uh, think just- like
1: it, it- yeah, so there's one alternative view, just to point out, and I won't go on. I mean, if you get, look at, it, I think, like, Douglas Moo or Thomas Schreiner's commentary, you'll see it. But in essence, it challenges the assumption that says uh, um, that unbelievers, that these are guys, that these guys actually are unbelievers, and they make a contextual argument that they, these are um, regenerated believers. Um, but uh, I would just refer you to, to uh, Schreiner and Moo's commentaries to um, catch that out.
2: I was just going to add that actually and nt wright makes a strong a similar case that what's in this what's in view of this passage is the fact that um gent the gentiles in this context are christian and so wright would point to the the latter half of this passage and and point out the person is a jew who was one inwardly in circumcision is circumcision by the heart and so he would speak of these people who michael I think assumes our non-believers he would actually view. These aren't non-believers. These aren't law abiding Gentiles. These are law abiding Christians.
1: Good.
0: Uh, this one's actually for all of us uh, is God's omniscience and e- e- eternal attribute. Yes. Yes.
1: I think we're all yeah.
0: uh, classic classical theists. We'd say yes. Um, here's a question from Chris Harris, uh, for, uh, for me and Colton, does the eternal decree itself exert any metaphysical necessity on the creature?
3: Um, I would say yes, because of God's eternal decree and immutability. So we cannot do otherwise. That's not so that's not the same as moral necessity, because I think Preciado and the reformed Orthodox deny that we have any sort of physical or moral necessity, because that would be incompatible with freedom. But a metaphysical necessity is not if we take it as the necessity of the consequence, which I do. So I would say yes, uh, the eternal decree does exert metaphysical necessity on the creature. That's why um we could even spin that as an argument for determinism if we wanted to but yeah. um yeah
0: yeah I, I i would answer with a very with a very soft yes um in in the sense that for example like uh like i i, I looked at verses in, in acts where it says you know by by god's predeterminate plan and and, and uh you know the 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 foreordaining um i think that there is some sense um, where God's decree has <laughs> metaphysically determined what will and will not take place, um, but I don't think that that is, you know, some type of uh, of, of causalism, um, you know, where 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 God is, you know, directly or even, yeah. uh, it, you know, immediately, um, or immediately causing.
3: I, yeah, I, um, I, that's a good place. distinction. I, I would say the same thing. Yeah. So if we wanted to be even more specific, I don't think God is actually picking out our choices for us. I think that's a common distinction that's in the literature, but usually with laymen, it's not appreciated. So with determinism, it's especially theistic determinism. It's not the case that God is actually picking out our choices specifically for us. The sinner no needs no guidance or determining factor in order for them to sin. Um, and so we will we will sin automatically of our own accord. And we always will sin automatically of our own accord.
1: So but, how do you square that with your statements that uh, we're not efficient causes?
3: Yeah, so I, I would say that we're just formal causes. So that's uh, aligned with guidance control. So we guide our thoughts, we guide our actions. But the way we guide our thoughts, and guide our actions, they will always inevitably be sinful. <clears throat> I don't well, know if the answer but right. that's what I would say.
2: Well, Colton, do you, do you hold to a Calvinist view of divine concurrence um, you know, described by people like Ursinus yeah. and Burkhoff who who teach that, yeah. you know, with Ursinus, in his commentary in the Heidelberg Catechism, he says that God presents objects to the person's understanding um, and so excites the will that the person does the action. But he also draws this distinction that you're making between the formal cause and for his view, I think it would be the efficient cause. God is not the formal cause of the sin, which I would agree with. He's just the efficient
3: cause. I would agree. But I disagree. But so, with that. I,
2: I know you. I, <laughs> I, you answered too quickly. Uh, Burkhoff also makes a similar point that God energizes all creaturely activity, so and that and that that scope of divine concurrence extends even to sinful acts. It's not just passive. You know, it's it's active. He sustains all things actively, unlike an Arminian view where he sustains things in a more general way without directing creatures to specific ends. He empowers them, but he doesn't uh, energize creatures towards particular activities. On the Calvinistic view, it seems that a, a person, for example, who's who who watches a billboard. And who's tempted to to lust after a woman who's depicted in the billboard, God would be presenting the idea to his mind. But then the person become thereby becomes the luster, and not God, you know. And and so I would agree that even in that context, the person is the formal cause of the sin. But it does still seem that God is not just merely letting people sin on their own, on their own. He's still he's still drawing their activity.
0: Well, I th- I think. I- you know, without 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 putting you all, you know, back on the defensive again and and saying, OK, well, you know, let's let's do a let's do a two quake type of thing. I, I think there's a sense where where I would where I would just push back and say, I, I think any 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 sufficiently orthodox view that takes God as creator and sustainer of all things that takes Hebrew seriously, that, you know, God is upholding all things by the power of his uh, the, the word of his power, um, which I mean, that, that that's an active phrase um i mean in in one sense it's like it's like the author of evil charge in one sense depending on what we mean we kind of all have to affirm that in in some type of soft sense um so the question almost becomes like like the question of a heap when when does a heap begin we may not know exactly when a heap begins but you know a heap when you see one um so there there's there's almost a very real sense where we say okay well you know it any view is going to have to say that god is upholding all things by the by the word of his power and so that you know the billboard example it's not that god is 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 causing the thought to come in this like god is not the causal mechanism by which this is happening but it also is equally the case that that god by his by his decree by his providence by by his upholding of all things i mean he's upholding the billboard uh, in, in in its material essence, he's upholding the the ability of the, the agent to see by the by the word of his power. Right there's there's a there's a sense where God is uh, is uh, causally uh, exerting power to uphold all things. Um, but the question is, does that make God, uh, you know, an, an efficient yeah. cause? Is that God? Well, does that make God blameworthy in the action? Well, That'd
2: I think no. I'm addressing a very uh, a more particular uh point about the way god exercises his sovereignty and the way god sustains all things i thought your your views were that god doesn't actually actively energize a sitter towards sin he just lets the, them sin of their own accord for me that yeah, would be the arminian, that would be the arminian view that god sustains all things generally he empowers all things so god would be the, the weak counterfactual cause of everything we do by virtue of god's that the fact that if god didn't create the world then there would be no sin so he would be a weak counterfactual cause but he wouldn't be the he wouldn't be actively energizing creatures to sin. he wouldn't be implanting suggestions in people's minds
0: to sin um
2: and well, that's so what i want is to to, uh, teach
0: well maybe we can clarify try. i mean i i i think we have a couple examples of uh, I want I want to make sure, and I and I try to caution people of saying let let's let's not say things, let's not go further than the Bible goes. Right, we have biblical passages where God does implant, right? You know, he he gives people a strong delusion. He you know he implants evil evil desires in people, right? So I, I want to make sure we don't go so far and say, okay, well, if God did those things, he would himself be evil. I don't think any of us are gonna, gonna say that. Um, uh. So, but also at the same time, I don't think. There there are some Calvinists, I know, that would say something like that, but I don't think Colton or myself or anyone would say something like, when someone sins, God is the active and sufficient agent putting that sin in their mind. Right? That, that, that yeah, tends I, to not be I, the, that's not the reformed view, think, though there may be reformed outliers for that.
3: I think that, uh, Finney, I remember talking to you about it one time, and so I don't think it's the reformed view. I don't think that we can adequately look and interpret those people like your sinus and Birkhoff and at all, whatever, as exactly what I mean here. I I would agree that if God is the efficient cause, the changing person, the changing cause of that person's will to do sin, then he would be the author of evil in the exact same way that Arminians and non-Calvinists would press against Calvinists. And the reason why I say that is because Well, the reason why I say that he's not the efficient cause is because I don't think the sinner needs any uh, guidance or any uh, efficient changing for them to sin. They will sin naturally of their own accord. So I agree that God is the efficient sustainer of all things. So he's the sustainer of the billboard. He created the universe and without him creating the universe, there would be no sin. And if you want to call that the weak counterfactual cause, then I can affirm that too. I don't see why that's necessarily the arminian position uh, i do think though god is the sufficient cause of all things and i think that's where you would you guys would disagree so yes he's the sufficient cause of my lust and my uh, sin and i do think that's what the westminster specifically chapter three holds to and i think that's all we can say with regards to the reformed orthodox now if some other reformed uh, teachers want to go out and say, yes, it is God energizing our will to sin, namely efficiently energizing it, then I would just flat out deny that. I would, even if I were to concede that, I would just fall back on what Vela just said that it's not as if it is a sin if God did implant a delusion in our mind, because we literally have that in the scriptures. Secondly, I think the uh there is a counterfactual pair that if god were active giving us grace we would not sin and if god were passive not giving us grace we would sin that is completely consistent with determinism so the amount of grace that he gives depends upon you know the outcome of my action and the the amount of grace he restricts from us also pops out a certain action and so he is not the efficient cause at best He's just the final cause, or the sufficient cause, um, and if anything, he is just causing via omission. But then you would have to go down the the argument saying that omission is in fact a cause. But I agree exactly with Kevin Tempe here, and that omission is not a cause, just like Phil Dow, and that at best it's a quasi cause. He uses that exact same uh, formulation in defending how. Uh, uh, A sinful will can be realigned to a gracious will in, in his philosophical theology book. I take that exact same model and I can put it on a God with regards to determining sinners. And I think it works perfectly. So I don't see how we need to affirm if we're reformed that God must be the efficient cause if that's what reformed orthodoxy means. I would just deny that that's what it means.
2: How are you defining efficient cause?
3: So I would say uh, at bottom, it's the change. So change in a thing. So going from one state to the next. So it was at this state, then it is at this state. And he is the active participant in changing that state from state A to state B or state of, you know, sin to state of righteousness, which I would affirm. I think God can change from a state of sin to a state of righteousness. He is the efficient cause of my regeneration. That's how we think, Tyler and I, we avoid plagianism. But from going from uh, sinfulness to another sinfulness or righteousness to sinfulness, I don't think he can be the efficient cause. All he has to do is restrain grace via omission. And that's deficient causation, not efficient causation. And that allows us to sin in the exact same way he wants us to sin. So he's still the sufficient cause without being the efficient cause. And that, I think, is still within the realm of reformed orthodoxy.
1: So how would you respond to, let's say, Jonathan Edwards' argument? So he would say essentially that everything that happens has a cause. And um, so so let's say, for example, God is, uh, withholds his grace, right? But Edwards would still say the person would do nothing and frankly be nothing if it wasn't for god causing them to do exactly what they do right because everything has to have a cause
3: so I i would have to a look at the text and b i don't i don't think we can go so far as to say that without god efficiently sustaining them in all events they are nothing uh i don't can you say it again
1: Everything that happens has a sufficient cause. Yeah, I
3: if agree with that. There
1: if if there wasn't a sufficient cause for it, then mm-hmm. um, it would not only would it not happen, but the person wouldn't exist at all. Right? The person yeah, would I, be I annihilated. Right. So yeah, so, yeah I agree. God, so, God is a sufficient
3: cause so, of all things.
1: So with one hand, God is withholding grace, but with the other hand, his concurrence is essentially the sufficient cause of exactly what exists. Yeah. You agree with that? Then, So there goes the distinction. I mean, well, the only sense the distinction uh, maintains is that's only when you look at what God's doing with his left hand, not when you're looking at what God's doing with his right hand.
3: So I think that would only work, that line of argumentation would only work if you needed sufficiency in order for you to be morally responsible, um, that's what it sounds like. Uh, because what you're saying is, that what? What are you implying that the responsibility would be? Let, let,
1: let's let's take moral responsibility out of the equation just for a second. Let's just okay. take a billiard ball striking another billiard ball. So, if if the concurrence is such that God created and sustains the billiard ball at location X at time T, and then at T one the next moment, he creates the billiard ball at the next location, and at T2, he creates the billiard ball at location three, and he, and so on, and so on, and so on, right? And so what Edwards is is saying is that it has to be that specific. It's not a general concurrence like, um, you know, Finney and I held to regard as enabling thing and providing a general concurrence that he can withhold. Rather, he is because of the requirement for a sufficient cause for everything that exists exactly as it exists exists at every moment and at every location that god is is specifying that there, there's no role left for us to be efficient causes and well, so that I, that, I, it, that has okay go ahead so what i'm what I, i'm saying is your grace your your point on grace what i'm talking about is god's left hand giving grace or not withholding grace only looks at that one aspect of what god's doing but the other aspect according to edwards is this whole idea of unless there's a sufficient cause not only would the the person not do anything but they wouldn't even exist
3: sure i don't believe that we are ever the efficient cause of our actions um i think um, because, because I take efficiency to entail sufficiency and so does other incompatibles like Perry or Robert Kane. So, okay. um, if, if, if I'm not the sufficient cause of my action, how could I be the efficient cause? And so since I'm never the sufficient cause because God, I believe in determinism and God is always the sufficient cause I'll never, ever be the efficient cause at best, I think I can be the formal cause in my actions. So if you're if not do. the
1: efficient cause, if you're not the efficient cause, who is
3: or what so is- sin, I don't think needs an efficient cause. So uh, I would take the privation theory on this one. Uh, so it's just deficiently cost. So neither God nor me causes our sin. It's just by omission um, or non consideration is what Aquinas says. Uh, But with regards to my righteous actions, especially since uh, I'm uh, regenerated and I do good things according to the Holy Spirit, like the fruit of the Spirit, that is efficiently caused because God can efficiently change your will from sinfulness to uh, righteousness. And so that is indeed efficiently caused. It's just the case that I don't efficiently cause righteous actions or sinful actions, and I only deficiently cause my own sin. So does God via omission. Uh, all the while, He is the sufficient cause, and I'm uh, not the sufficient cause, nor the efficient cause of anything. I hope that so, maybe clears it up.
1: It's one thing to say that the the okay. So regarding the privation, it's one thing to say that, and I actually agree with the privation of right. evil. That's that that's a good thing. I, I think, you know, in, at least within good. certain spheres. I mean, it's helpful against a Buddhist, let's say, for example, that yeah. you know uh, thinks that the flesh is evil or something like that, or you know. In refuting Dan Brown, you know like the Da Vinci Code, that's really helpful stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but here here I, I'm not so sure because you know you, you defined efficiency with respect to change, right? And sure. it, it's certainly true that a person changes um, now that that change might lead to evil in the sense of privation, but there's 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 got to be an efficiency in there. So if the efficiency isn't me, you know, some, so somehow it's changed from me not lying to me lying, right? And if that that efficient cause isn't me, um, even if we take the privation of evil uh, view, there still has to be some type of efficiency in there. And if Edwards is right, then that efficiency can't be in me, and it has to just go to God. And it's not just a matter of God withholding his grace. It's, it's a matter sure. of God, it's God's concurrence specified that i would exist as a non-liar and then exist as a liar
3: (laughs) yeah i I think i would deny that i need a efficient deficient cause i think aquinas says that and i would just take the augustine route and say no I, i think that's false uh if we are sinful human beings and totally depraved by our very like uh um uh nature ontologically i would even say we are sinful so that means I can only do civil good and horizontally, but I can never, ever do moral good. So all my moral good actions will always be deficiently caused. I don't see why I need an efficient cause for that.
0: Is, it, is this like, uh, you know, I think the common example given is, um, you know, if you, if you put a rock on an, on an incline, you don't, you don't need yeah. an efficient cause causing the rock to you know, you know, making making the rock yeah. go downhill. That's it just by its nature, it will just go downhill. It doesn't need an efficient cause. It just needs it just needs the deficient cause of, yeah. of, of its of its being in context.
3: Given certain conditions, circumstances, environmental poles, it will it would fall. And that's exactly I think Bignon says something with the bobsled. So he has a bobsled analogy. Edwards used the analogy of a sun. So where the sun is shining, God's grace is, where the sun is not shining, God's grace is not. That's what's cold. Um, Other such analogies could just be with the ball falling, but I I would use the exact same thing. So I don't think you need an efficient cause, uh, just omission, but omission is just negative activity instead of positive activity. It's just deficient instead of efficient. You, you can relate
0: box. this to, to double predestination and, and equal intimacy. Yeah, like that. I do.
3: So in my work with Stratton, I do that exact same thing. I take Tempe's uh, rearticulation of Phil Dow's work with quasi uh, causes or omissions and how God just omits his saving grace from the reprobate. And he's still not morally responsible for doing that in the same way. While if you, om- if in your uh, in your guys's view of source and compatibilism, in the same way that if uh you omit from restraining uh to you go from resisting god to a quiescent uh quiescent will to an uh, accepting will so from when you omit uh from resisting god to go to a quiescent will is what tempe says that right there is a quasi omission a quasi cause or an omission and you're still more you're you're still uh held responsible for that but not in a culpable way because a quiescent will is still sinful. So I take that, and then God swoops down, obviously saves the sinner, all the while you're still responsible for and because you're the sufficient cause. That's how Tempe avoids Pelagianism. I take the exact same model, and I just put it on with regards to reprobation, uh, with regard uh, and God and irresistible grace, and I think it works beautifully.
1: Fair, fair enough. I mean, we could uh, we could go on all day, but we can move on to the next point, Tyler, if you if you'd like to. No, I
0: I think I think Colton and I are still still in the hot seat. I think we go for another uh, you know ten ten minutes or so, and then there's some there's a few more questions, and cool. uh, we can see from there. So,
2: uh, Colton, you made the point about it, it. seemed it seemed at first that you agreed that conditional ability is necessary for moral responsibility, but but it seems like you might be willing to uh, take the Velen's dispositional view in lieu of conditional analysis. Is that- Yeah.
3: So after talking with you, I don't know, like last May or something, um, I started looking at Vin and Wagen's principle of possible prevention again. I'm still not necessarily convinced of your argument that you gave me, way back when, I think it's a decent one, probably some of the best I've seen. Um, all, all that to say is, yeah, I think I could probably be convinced either way. I think the conditional is maybe getting at something like the idea with regards to moral responsibility, just in an indirect route. And I think the disposition of, of what I'm reading from uh, Kadri, I think the disposition hits it more in a direct route. And so I think I would rather perhaps go to a dispositional route, just, just because I think it also aligns more with Reformed theology and original sin and imputed guilt. And so um, because it's that idea of that we have a disposition to sin. So I'm trying to work out a theory where it kind of brings in that. And I'm going to probably eventually leave the conditional off to the side. But I, I don't know yet.
2: I think the the beauty of the consequence argument is that it doesn't matter uh, the conception of ability. The the key is the transferability of inability. So whether the inability to prevent Q uh, pre, to prevent P transfers to the inability to prevent Q. Um, mm-hmm. I actually I would encourage you to stick the conditional ability instead of dispositional ability. I I I think that. Okay. I, 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 I think that I, I'm sorry I feel bad that our conversations have led you towards dispositional ability. I, as far as I can understand it, um, you know, a rock has the dispositional ability to break a window, right? And what that mm-hmm. means is a, a dispositional ability for those of you who are new to theve, is the ability of an um, is the ability of an object to do some X when placed in a, within a broad range of circumstances. So a rock could break a window in this dispositional sense. If you have me throwing the rock at the window, it's not because I'm puny and I and I skip arm day at the gym. But if you have someone like Tyler throwing the rock at the window, it's gonna smash through the window, it's gonna smash through the next brick wall, you know? And so it, the rock has a dispositional ability to break a window so long as when placed in a broad range of circumstances it does break the window at least once or twice right by
0: by the way I'm not I'm not Paul Minata, right so I I don't know I don't know if I could break break bricks uh but couldn't couldn't we just say and and this is this is where my you know I I'm not sure I entirely understand dispositional you know new dispositionalism and and all that stuff so uh, this could be totally wrong, and, and you all could be like Tyler, you know, shut up and and, and remute. Um, couldn't couldn't we just say though that when we're talking about disposition dispositionalism relevant to the topic of freedom, we are just talking about dispositional agency. We're we're, we're not talking about rocks and trees. We're 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 talking about the dispositions and natures of agents specifically yeah. that are even in the realm of of of, uh, of possible freedom in the first place.
3: That's what I think Vivalen is trying to get at. So the idea that I'm going to summarize what Finney just said even more using her actual term. So she uses wide and narrow abilities. And I believe it's, it's not completely uh, uh, incompatible with incompatibilism. Namely, an incompatibilist could use these abilities. In fact, Franklin has already done, uh, used these abilities and morphed it with Keynes, uh, uh, libertarianism, uh, in his book. And I, I actually really like it. It's a really good theory, but all, all that to say is with wide and narrow abilities, it's really this, I have the, uh, narrow ability to, um, do something like, uh, like play guitar in, um, my room because I have a guitar in my classroom but if i wanted to play the piano could i say that i can i play the piano right now i would say no i have a wide ability to play it but i don't have the narrow ability to play it because it's not in my classroom or something along those lines and so uh we don't need to get too much into it but it's kind of like the idea um and so when it's kind of like uh, a builder doesn't cease to be a builder when he's sleeping so he still has it's often called what fisher calls a general ability so he has this general ability to keep building even though he sleeps. He doesn't have the specific ability, but he does have the general ability. Uh, He can still be called as a builder and he can still say to somebody, yeah, I can build things, even though he doesn't have tools along with them and so forth. So his disposition is the case that he is a builder and that he can actually build though the opportunities don't allow him to build. So that has a lot to do with these opportunities and a lot to do with Um, circumstances that you're in and to me i think uh, it gets more direct at what the kind of abilities we're talking about if we want to conserve leeway which i kind of do (laughs) i kind of like it so if we want to conserve leeway then i think i'd rather switch there to answer finney's question though and maybe he can elaborate i don't know if the disposition and i haven't read uh, Kadri's book completely through, but I know she deals with the consequence argument. So, um, but I don't know if you can just input the disposition into, uh, the consequence argument and then pops out that you couldn't do otherwise. I think the dispositional almost wholly avoids that in, in ways that maybe the conditional does not. As as your original arguments and what Vaninwagon kind of anticipates, and so that's why I think I like it. So I can cons- I can say, well, yeah, the consequence argument perhaps is sound and yeah, it works, but it, it touches nothing about dispositions, and so even if the consequence argument is true, why does that what 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 does that have to do with responsibility um, or a control condition? So couldn't, that's kind of we
0: going.
3: couldn't we put so.
0: I'm going to actually step in in Dan and Finney's shoes for a minute, um, and 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 ask. And again, this could just be you know, uh, you know, an in, in ill form question. But but couldn't we say that that dispositional dispositionalism in in the same way that incompatibilism seems to? Um, sorry, I think Finney. There he is. Yeah, I mean, add, add back the right the right Finney the other camera Finney, um, in in the same way that incompatibilism seems to kind of at its core when when you when you, you know when you poke it it bleeds leeway, Ooh. um, couldn't couldn't you couldn't you say that the dispositionalism when you poke it, it still just bleeds conditional conditionality right so so it still just yes. is that that the they could have done otherwise. Ooh had the disposition and the context been different, right? So maybe I'm not sure yeah, how dispositionalism isn't just a subspecies of conditionality. I would, I, would,
3: I, like, I like that. I, I do think that the disposition at some parts does entail some sort of conditions and that's where I'm trying to work on right now. But yeah, I think you were right there. Finney.
2: Yeah. So I think yeah. that dispositional ability, it, you're right. Conditional ability is, relates to an ability one has when discounting what his actual wants are in his circumstances. And so but but it's a very specific condition. The, the subjunctive right. antecedent condition is his wants. Whereas dispositional ability is much more broader. It's internal properties, extrinsic properties, circumstances in the environment. You know, you could have the dispositional ability to play a piano but if you're in a subway, in that moment, you lack the conditional ability to play the piano, even if you have the dispositional ability, because you could have played even if you wanted to, unless you have like a piano on those little lame iPhone, you know, app things, you know, and you want to play away with those six keys, you know? But, and, and so you, I, I think you could have the dispositional ability without necessarily having the conditional, but they do overlap. Um, the 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 entrance point into the consequence argument is, if it doesn't seem to matter which conception you're using, what matters is whether the ability transfers. So, in the in the case of the golfer who sees a woman out in the distance, could he have prevented um, the woman from being mugged, even if he, even if he wants? to. If we stipulate that he can. It still seems that he might be dispositionally able to, and so it doesn't seem to me to now sufficiently uh, track moral moral responsibility because he might have prevented it under different circumstances. You know, he he might have the ability to knock a golf ball uh, long enough given the circumstances, given more favorable weather conditions, for example. Sure. But supposing that dispositional ability follows the same way as conditional ability in this particular scenario where where he doesn't, he isn't able to do otherwise, even if he wanted to, and he also lacks the dispositional ability to prevent the, to prevent the, uh, the mugging. And mm-hmm. the mugging causes as a necessary consequence, the woman to suffer a stroke. And he's unable in both the conditional and dispositional sense to prevent Q from occurring as a consequence of P. If that's the case, then he's simply unable to prevent Q. He's it, it seems like if he doesn't have the dispositional ability to prevent Q and doesn't have the dispositional ability to prevent Q from occurring built P. Did I I think I may have misstated that earlier. If he doesn't have the dispositional ability to prevent P and doesn't have the dispositional ability to prevent Q as a consequence of P, then he doesn't have the dispositional ability to prevent Q. Uh, wouldn't that be
0: valid? I, I think and, and Colton, maybe maybe this is going off in, in the wrong direction. And I think I think God is a defeater for a lot of these objections. Right. So I, I think unless you have a symmetry breaker on on praise and blame, it doesn't seem to me that that so God didn't choose his own nature, right? We're we're all classical theists. Um, And I don't think God has the ability to prevent the outcome of his him choosing righteously. Right. So so Mm -hmm. it seems to me that the the consequence argument would if if it's sound and we say, okay, it's 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 sound in showing Mm -hmm. that if, if you don't meet these conditions, then you're not blameworthy. It seems to me that you would have to say that. Equally, unless you have something that, that creates a symmetry breaker, that God isn't praiseworthy, right? Because it seems that that God's righteousness, His omnibenevolence, and His immutability and His right, like it seems that that would 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 meet the sufficient conditions such that that no one is pr- praised or blameworthy, and so therefore, if we're not blameworthy under those conditions, then God wouldn't be praiseworthy under those conditions. Um, so, 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 so I don't know how I, that how that sits with you.
2: So I think that's a really interesting and good point. Um, The two points I would make in response is firstly, most compatibilists throughout history until recently have held to classical compatibilism. They've held that at the very least for human moral responsibility, whether or not for divine morals, responsibility for humans to be morally responsible, they need to have at least the conditional ability to to do otherwise. And I think Colton even mentioned it. I think some leeway is necessary, and Binyan falls into this category. And so, when we're, I, I think number one, so I think the first point is we might be comparing apples and oranges with respect to humans. If, if we're taking the classical compatible strategy, that mm-hmm. the conditional ability to do otherwise is necessary for moral responsibility, and this is compatible with determinism then the consequence argument demonstrates that given determinism, people don't even have the conditional ability to do otherwise. They couldn't have done it even if they wanted to. The second point I would make, and and, and therefore that that classical approach is not a viable option. And this is actually the point that many compatibilists have recognized, like John Martin Fisher, who then uh, considers the consequence argument to be plausible, but then develops what he calls source compatibilism or semi-compatibilism, which Mm -hmm. affirms that whether or not moral responsibility is compatible with free will, um, it's compatible with determinism. And that's a narrower, uh, weaker version of compatibilism than the classical view uh, that most people have defended historically. On that view, and and Dan and I both identify as source incompatibilists, What I would suggest is that the consequence argument still applies given source incompatibilism uh, to the extent that it suggests if a person's actions are determined by external factors, then that person's actions cannot be attributed to him. With respect to God, that does not require him to have the ability to do otherwise. This is the point that makes <laughs> about divine goodness and moral responsibility, and he he spent a lot of pages outlining this, explaining that on a source incompatibilist, the point the, the relevant point is not so much the ability to do otherwise, whether the person could be attributable, um, whether the person's actions could be attributable to him, and as he argues, and I think he uses the consequence argument to support this point. Even with respect to God, God's actions, even though he could not have chosen them, his actions are not determined by external factors. And thus he's praiseworthy because he is by nature good. So similarly, a person uh, would be praiseworthy for being a, a naturally bright student. But if his actions... But but the but here, I think the, the principle of alternative possibilities would show up in a more modest form, as Colton mentioned earlier, the principle of possible prevention, which is that a person cannot be morally blameworthy for some event unless he could have prevented it. And if determinism is true, you couldn't have even prevented it even if you wanted to. And so it seems that on determinism, a person even lacks the conditional ability to prevent that action. And therefore, he couldn't be morally responsible for that.
0: Maybe I, maybe I missed it. I, you know, I'll hand it over to Colton. But I, I think I missed the symmetry breaker because it just seems to me, it just seemed like special pleading, right? It just, it just felt like, well, for praise, God's praiseworthy because He's good, right? The 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 kind of the 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 praise the. The actual, you know, heavy lifting of the of the consequence argument just doesn't really seem to apply to God, because God just is praiseworthy by nature. Even though, because you have to remember that the the consequence argument moves in along the principle of if you couldn't have changed the condition, then you're not praise blame, right? But when we show well, well, God couldn't have prevented himself from being good, you want to make kind of this this exemption for that. But I could go back and say, okay, well, I mean, then the consequence, I could say, okay, well, you know, sinners uh, can uh, be blameworthy, blameworthy because they because just are by nature sinners and God, but, but they, you know, God determined their nature. They, they couldn't have determined their nature otherwise, but God couldn't have determined his nature otherwise, right? I, am still, maybe, maybe I missed yeah. something, you know, I, I, we're over two hours and I want to get to the questions, but you know, I'm still not sure how that, how that gets out of the, the, the problem of God not being able to, to prevent his nature from being what it is. And yet he's praiseworthy as a defeater for saying, well, I couldn't prevent my nature from being what it is. And so therefore the consequences that come out from my sinful nature, namely sin, rejection, rebellion, all that, all that stuff that that makes me worthy of of wrath and condemnation outside of Christ, how somehow that doesn't make me blameworthy for that. Right. I, I, I Maybe I just missed missed it. I'm I'm sorry. I'll listen back to it. I, I really will listen back to it and see. if yeah. I missed I miss something. So,
2: I mean, so this is why philosophy is much better done in text than in and in, in verbal conversations because I can't I can't remember what I just said ten minutes ago. Um,
0: <laughs> but, but that's I, age. That's, that's age, my friend.
2: <laughs> well, Colton doesn't get it yet,
0: but the rest of us do. Yeah, it's
2: it, and, and so I think the the two missing ingredients here are. Uh, Number one, the principle of possible prevention, which is, which applies specifically to blameworthiness. A person is, cannot be blameworthy for an event that he couldn't prevent unless he could have prevented it. With respect to (coughs) praiseworthiness, I don't think that there, these two concepts are entirely symmetrical. I think if you have a person who's naturally bright, for example, he would be praiseworthy for for passing a test, but I don't think that if a person were um, uh, couldn't have passed a test even if he wanted to, that in that condition he would be naturally not bright. But I don't think he would be blameworthy in the same way. I don't think he would deserve blame in the same way. He, we would we would treat we would regard that person not so much with blame as we would with compassion. The second point is that. The, the specific point required for source incompatibilism is not the ability to, to do otherwise, so it doesn't re, it, it, so it doesn't require the consequence argument. It doesn't require the ability to do otherwise in order to be put, uh, praiseworthy or blameworthy. Rather, what it requires is that one's actions are not causally determined by external factors. For God, that could be the case even if. His act, even if he lacked the ability to do otherwise, even if he couldn't tell a lot. Um, but with respect to humans, uh, if our actions are not determined externally and, and if God gives us the ability to uh, and, and in the context of a blameworthiness, um, we could be morally responsible for events that we fail to prevent if we could have prevented them. So I mean, if that doesn't help clarify, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to keep restating. Maybe Dan wants to chime in.
1: No, I'll, I'll leave that be. Um, I might just add more confusion than clarity, to be honest at this point. <laughs> I, 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 think, I, I think, I think, I think I would take uh, a, a different uh, tactic altogether. So uh, I'll leave it be.
3: I, uh, I do like this kind of like I, I always tell like my philosophy students that if you're going to talk about free will, the hardest things about free will are Frankfurt's argument, which I actually find easier than the consequence argument. And then the consequence argument is the second one. Because those are life like field changing arguments. Right. Consequence argument is very thick <laughs> of, of responses and of counter arguments. And so um, I, like I said before, I'm going to take kind of a weasel way out and say, I'm not sure I like what you're saying. Um, but I'm not sure if I'm going to if I'm necessarily convinced by it. I just have to read more than in wagon and see how it relates to it. I would say though, that uh, you, you said earlier that the classical compatibilists must hold to something like the conditional. Perhaps if we're going to take like Hobbes and Edwards and yeah, but if we're gonna maybe the event like contemporary classical compatibilists, I think all that's really required is just being unforced, and uh, not coerced, I think, uh, even incompatibilists would argue that that you can't be free if you're coerced, or manipulated or uh, uh, forced in some way. And I think the classical compatibilists would say that now how they account for that, and yet still be free, is the conditional but uh, if we take the conditional out and just hold to the bare bones, I still think we can hold to some sort of aspect of classical compatibilism. And e- like I said, even if you're completely—if we're completely wrong on that—again, I would just have to swoop in and just say, "Okay, fine, I concede everything. I will just be a source compatibilist and just hold to um, something like uh, guidance control, like." more vigorously than I would have.
2: Right. And, and you know, there, there's, like you said, Frankfurt's paper, I think like the freedom of the will and the concept of a person or something. Is yeah. that what it's called? It, yeah. It's groundbreaking essay. And um, e- essentially, my understanding of what happened to classical compatibilism is that, so classical compa- compatibilism is this idea, like you said, it's about the idea of not being forced to do something by another person. And Hume famously said that everyone who's not in chains has this ability, right? And if, if you're not in chains, then you have free will, right?
4: Mm-hmm. The,
2: the, the challenge that was posed increasingly by libertarian philosophers um, to this idea in the early 20th century is how do you, what about people who suffer from mental illnesses or mental disorders? So Isaiah Berlin said, what is the difference between a kleptomaniac who's a compulsive mm-hmm. i think it's a, a compulsive thief right from someone who's not a compulsive thief because they're neither of them are being forced or coerced and they could do otherwise if they wanted to or in the sense that they could they do have the conditional ability uh, to do otherwise to the extent that if she didn't want to steal you know a purse uh she wouldn't have and it's here where Frankfurt's ideas have become really influential. And I actually, as an incompatibilist, I, I find his hierarchical compatibilism to be one of the more compelling uh, ideas that they've brought up. It's the idea that you, we can divvy up our desires in two levels. So your first order desires are desires to do stuff. Your second mm-hmm. order desires are desires to have desires. You could have mm-hmm. a first order desire to steal something while wishing that you didn't want to steal. And so you experience this moral crisis. And so you, you steal against your own wishes. And Frankfurt would say that you were not morally responsible. Uh, but if you identify, if if you, if you are wholehearted in your desires, then you are morally responsible. I find that to be really interesting and, and Fisher's ideas as well. The The challenge I would pose for, for 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 christians and reformed christians in particular is let's let's take you know the top of the line uh shelby mustang of of compatibilism reasons response responsiveness right mm-hmm. i would suggest that it's not that easy to take a model like that which is being which was introduced by secular compatibilists who don't have to labor under commitments to doctrines like total depravity, or even, or much worse, I think, to to the reformed view of of imputed guilt, which is even hard, which is a very tall order. In developing their ideas, I think it's difficult to to take those ideas, uh, and and kind of shoehorn them in. So so one example is Fisher. One of Fisher's elements of his reasons responsiveness is the idea of mechanism ownership. You cannot Mm -hmm. be responsible for some action unless you were physically the owner of that action. You were, your cognitive faculties was the mechanism through which that action, you know, uh, uh, occurred.
4: Yeah.
2: So if that were the case, and if you need to be the owner of that mechanism, Um, And if you were not, then you couldn't be morally responsible because that's necessary for moral responsibility. The problem is that given the reformed conception of original sin, people appear to be born guilty as Adam and deserving of Adam's penalty. And that's as a consequence of, of, of that deserving of that guilt, they're born totally depraved as a punishment. For Adam's sin, even though they couldn't <laughs> have prevented it, even if they wanted to, so they don't have the conditional ability to prevent it, and they weren't the mecha- they, they didn't have mechanism ownership with respect to the sin of eating the forbidden fruit. Another another uh, issue that I would like to see reformed theologians, you know, discuss is how is whether non-believers meet the requirements of reason. A reasons responsiveness with respect to having faith in Christ, because in order to have reasons responsiveness, your guidance control, your brain Mm -hmm. leads leads you uh, to do the right thing, at least regularly. If you never do the right thing, if you're a broken clock, then you have a poor, you have a defective guidance control right? So the, the way we know that you have a guidance control that's able to respond to reasons is that you often do the right thing. But with respect to non-believers who are not regenerate, they never naturally have faith in Christ. So they never yeah. seem to, their guidance system is unable to get them there. And and this is true because of the noetic effects of the fall. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's impaired our cognitive abilities and our ability to, to receive Christ. Uh, The point that I've seen, you know, reformed Christians quote often is Corinthians where Paul says uh, people in their natural, in their carnal nature are unable to receive the things of Christ. And so I, I think that more work needs to be done to show how these two things could be harmonized. I
0: I think here I, I would just say, I, I think reformed have answered this. It's just, it's just in our ecclesiology rather than our soteriology. It just it falls under our view uh, of covenant theology, um, federal headship, and 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 you see this type of thing, um, you know, not, not just in the covenant of works uh, with with Adam, um, but you see it in in the covenant of uh, of grace, where you know again the symmetry of this is you know we 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 ourselves are not righteous, but we benefit in, in our justification with the righteousness of Christ. You see it there you can see it and we and we see this principle of covenant headship throughout the old testament so this this is where i would say that there's a certain point where i want to come back and and, you know i'm not one of those people that's like you know don't do philosophy philosophy bad like or anything like that but i i think there's a certain point where we say okay whatever whatever philosophy we have it has to be derived from from our passages or in concord with it and so if we say well there's something wrong somehow with God judging someone because of someone else's sin as a punishment. um, We run into all kinds of scriptural problems at that point. Right. So, so I, again, like, like I said in the previous, I don't want to, you know, and I would press you. I I wouldn't want to do our philosophy by asserting principles that are those themselves, those principles out of accord with what the scripture teaches. So you can see like Achan, the sin of Achan and his entire family is put to death as, as a punishment for the sin of Achan. And it seems like if we hold the principle that you want to hold, we would have to say that somehow God was unjust for doing that. Um, the same thing with David and Bathsheba when, when they when they sin, the punishment for it was was the the death of you know, directly caused by God, the death of their child, um, their son. And, and at one degree, we'd have to say, well, if we hold the principle that you're that you're going for to if we hold that principle that you want to use to oppose to our view, we would have to then say that God was somehow doing something unjust or evil or unfair or, you know, however soft we want to make it, but something illicit in judging these action, these, these individuals for the actions of somebody else. Um, I I think that just a a strong view of, of, of federal headship and covenant, you know, covenant uh, covenant headship within the scriptures um, has been historically how reformed have handled this, but. I, again that's I in our theology not necessarily in our sociology.
2: So so I completely agree with you and I my response to that is partly that the idea of classical compatibilism the way that Edwards has articulated the freedom of the will and that and even Bignon following in that tradition has actually been a departure from the traditional historic reformed view of moral responsibility. I'm not I'm not arguing that, you know, God on the Reformed view is unjust, all I'm arguing is based on the principle that conditional ability is necessary for moral responsibility, based on the principle that reasons responsiveness is necessary for moral responsibility, and based on the acceptance of these ideas by Reformed theologians, you have an inconsistency there. I'm not not peering in from an Arminian perspective and saying, hey, your conception of God is unjust. I'm saying, hey, if humans are morally responsible for Adam's sin, which they were not the for which the mechanism of that sin they were not the owners, because and they may be legally imputed that guilt because he is their federal head and he's their federal head because they're his he's their natural head. Um, then the conditional ability to do otherwise is not necessary for moral responsibility. Then the reasons exactly. responsiveness would not be necessary for more responsibility.
0: I I, th- I think maybe what we could say to this, um, and then Colton, I'll, I'll you know jump in. I, I think what we can say to this is that this is why we've seen a move away from kind of classical compatibilism because classical compatibilism, what it was trying to do was come up with the the rigid structure of what are what are all these necessary conditions for someone to be responsible, right? And now most compatibilists, and this is where I think Colton and I would be, you know. Kind of optimistic or strong you know if you could almost use the the the, the oxymoron we're strong soft compatibilists um where where you know I, I would say well on the one hand i think there's a negative case against incompatibilism. i don't think leeway or con, you know categorical ability is necessary uh for 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 responsibility um and i think we have these examples where something like i said in my in my initial comments where something is determined and free and and if that's the case Just some kind of compatibilism is true, and I can start to give, you know, what I call answers in the right direction. You know, we can look and say, okay, well, you know, conditional ability seems to be something that as long as we have conditional ability, we, we, we have freedom but maybe there's cases where we don't, you know, maybe that's not even necessary for freedom. Maybe there's these other cases, right? So, so maybe it's not the case that conditional ability is necessary in every case for moral responsibility. It's just a really good candidate for what describes uh, the type of freedom that, that, that's sufficient for moral responsibility. Right. So, so I, I think you have, you know, where you have, you have really kind of weak compatibilists and I don't mean that in like a pejorative sense, you have kind of weak compatibilists that say, look, all we need to, ha- to have to have the, the kind of warranted belief in compatibilism is kind of these negative examples against incompatibilism. And then some of these other conditions that, you know, might in certain circumstances lead the moral responsibility. And if that's the case, um, then 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 we could be, you know, we could we could be compatibilists. And that's and that's OK. I don't need to give this kind of comprehensive, rigid structure of everything that's necessary for freedom before I can commit myself to some type of compatibilism.
3: Yeah, so I just want to say, uh, sorry, my school bells are still on. So, <laughs> Secondly, uh, I think Finney raised some great questions. I remember way, way back when I first met Finney, he was giving me all these great questions. And it just so happened, uh, there's an actual Reformed scholar who has written a whole book on it. And uh, the compatibility of guidance, control, and reform theology. I actually have it right here. <laughs> so the whole book is based off Michael Patrick Preciado, if anyone wants to read it, a Reformed View of Freedom. The whole book is based on this, that he wants to take contemporary gems like the Shelby Mustang of compatibilism, guidance control, and actually morph it in. I don't really like... The idea of shoehorning it in, but morphing it in and seeing how it's compatible with uh, with reform theology, such as the three forms of unity, Westminster, Heidelberg, so forth. And uh, I think he does a fantastic job. So some of the questions that Finney raised, I think were kind of you said two, but I think you try to squeeze in three here. So the first one was mechanism ownership. The second one, I think you kind of squeezed in was. Um, Imputed guilt, like how can we be the source of something that's not ours, I I believe. Um, And like going back to Adam and basically uh, um, the fall. And then unbelievers, how does that relate to unbelievers? So I would like to respond to at least a little bit and then we can uh, do whatever we need to. But uh, for me personally, I think for mechanism ownership, Preciado actually like answers that exact same question. So it's not like he's... Uh, um, oh, you also mentioned Jonathan Edwards as a, a departure of the Reformed faith, but um, Perciotto does answer the idea of mechanism ownership. And really what you're, where you're discussing is the idea of mechanism individualization is really the, the hard part because that is a gap in Fisher and Revisa's original theory of guidance control. So many critics, including other compatibilists like McKenna, has uh beat them up on that one on that one fact why wouldn't you assume that we all have the exact same kind of mechanism that just approaches certain reasons responsiveness the same way and they just take for granted that's the same why why should we own our mechanism well fish and Ravisa give three criteria for owning our mechanism and that is source like you mentioned that we are the source of our action it's accountability to our community. So in the original formulation, it's accountability to the secular community at hand. And then uh, evidence that we have to have evidence based on that fact. So a history of being accountable. And I think Presiato answers all three. So yes, we're not the efficient source. You're right. We don't efficiently own our mechanism, but I don't see why that matters. I think what we can, and I don't even think that Fish and Revisa would even say that they are the efficient source by source I don't think that they would actually say that I think what they mean is something more along the lines of formal sourcehood, which is why in their responsibility and control book, the very first chapter details Aristotelian causation. Because they recognize that their uh, model has to be founded upon something like Aristotelian causation, so they don't actually articulate it, but I would do the Liberty and say, yeah, I'm going to articulate it like this. It's formal sources, not efficient. So I think that solves it. We can still be a uh, um, e- e- formal sources, not efficient. With regards to accountability, we are accountable to God. The census dividitatis is where Preciado comes in, gives the spiritual uh, gap that Fisher and Ravisa were missing and then kind of mends the puzzle. So how can we recognize that we have the same mechanism from each person to each person? He says the census divitatis as found in Romans 2. And then evidence uh, evidence is just pretty much like we have a history of being um, accountable to God, to each other and the scriptures. So that's the evidence that at least Preciado takes. Um, with regards to Adam, I think he says something along the lines of Adam's guidance control is our guidance control Vague. He spends like a page and a half, I think on what uh, that is. And that's like, okay. So I tried to go in and detail it. If you recall Finney in our previous conversation, like a year and a half ago, and I tried to, and I think you actually said I did a lot better than he did. So that's a compliment, <laughs> but I think what I said was, What that means, what I take that to mean is no matter who God puts in that situation, any human, we will always sin. So we will always actually commit the sinning, regardless of it's committing the uh, the sin of eating the fruit or some other sin, we'll always sin. And I concoct that whole thing into what I call transworld deprivation. Why will we always sin? It's because we're always deprived of essential goods. We're not God. We can get into that later, but that's how I would solve that. So the idea of Adam's um, uh, fall, how does that relate to us? How can God uh, sufficiently and righteously put his imputed guilt on us? It's because we would have done the same thing we would have done. If we were in Adam's shoes, no matter what world God has created, um, if Tyler was in the garden if Finney was in the garden, I was in the garden, my wife, whatever, we would have done the same thing and we would have chosen uh, sin over God. And that's why Preciado, I think, says, his guidance control. Adam's is our guidance control. Uh, and then last for unbelievers, you said, uh, the noetic effects and recognizing evil. I think, I think, uh, you have a good point there. Presiado actually doesn't talk too much about that. Uh, if I recall, but I would just say the same thing that Tempani says, and that's just the guise of the good. So that's just from medieval philosophers that we look at something and we think that's good when it's really not. And so we think that we're doing all this like moral good, but it's really just civil good. And what Aquinas says is just the guise of the good. And so our reasons responsive mechanism is being uh, responding to what we think is good in our society as it's coming about is being formulated in that guise right? Uh, And not the actual moral good that God has in store for us. I don't know if that answers everything that you had. It was a great question. And I love talking about it. So you made some great points. I just wanted to take the time to sufficiently answer some of that. Sorry.
2: I appreciate that. And I just want to say your response to it is actually much better than I thought. Uh, Preciado's own response. I did read his book, really well-written book and i think it, it 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 is a very good exposition of of reason's responsiveness um with respect to the the form, be formal sources i would concede that um but with respect to adam sin we're not the formal formal source of Adam's sin we're mm-hmm. we're not even the we're not the person in the garden uh who who ate the forbidden fruit um
4: yeah, I'm not,
2: I, I'm, not I, I'm in Syracuse. We don't even have any gardens. Everything, everything is covered in snow. Uh, I haven't seen a garden in a very long time. Uh, so we wouldn't satisfy that necessary condition. It On Fisher's view, formal sources is a necessary condition for moral
3: responsibility. Yeah, I I think what I would say is to, uh, I would kind of appeal to a Molinistic type thing uh, when that no matter what, Determ- but with strong actualization as to keep hold of determinism. Sorry, Dan. But, but uh, I would say that no matter which world God actualized, just like the deficient cause, we will always deficiently sin in some way. So I, I kind of am doing like a sort of like a, f- a free will defense, but a compatible free forward. will defense.
2: Is this like the, yeah, train, I mean, I the gravity thing?
3: Yeah, I'm trying to say that even if, because I know Jerry Walls and uh, a lot of those. Uh, uh people want uh, theologians want to say that oh if god created a world of compatibilism um he could determine all people to freely come to him and i want to say that that's false uh, otherwise he'd be manipulating them so that's where manipulation does come in because determining sequences do matter underneath the compatibilist uh, dogma and so if god were to determine them in such a way as to not manipulate them they would still kind of burst out the seams, and the sin would still kind of burst out the seams. It's a deficient causation. Other, So right. another way to put it is, I think our inner telos, who our personality is, is not actually determined by God. Otherwise, he would be manipulating us. That's like the only thing I would concede as indeterministic. But our actual actions, um, our derivative actions from that non-derivative inner telos those actions bringing about, those are determined by God, and we do own those in a formal way. So in other words, God can place any one of us into the garden, and we would still sin. That, I think, is how he can say, okay, Adam, Adam's guilt does transfer to our guilt, because we would have done the same if he would determine us to be in the garden just like Adam.
2: Right. So... When I I remember reading Alvin Plantinga's God, Freedom, and Evil, and when he got to transworld depravity, it just went over my head completely. And like <laughs> 15 years later, I still don't quite understand it. I, I I'm skeptical of the idea, but if we mm-hmm. follow that idea of transworld depravity, you know, firstly, but before we follow it, I would suggest that it it is a controversial issue even within the Reformed tradition whether Adam was able to to, to sin. Um, yeah. Hands- I, I don't know if I'm, I'm butchering his name right, Hans Madum. He wrote, he, he reformed theologian who contributed uh, an essay on like uh, various views on original sin. And he t- entertains this particular view, this idea that you're making, uh, you know, if, if it were us, we would have done the same thing. And Hans disagrees saying that uh, because Adam was fully, both naturally able to do it and morally able uh, to, to obey God's law it seems difficult for us to say that we would have we would have had to have done the same thing uh but even if we did you know let's suppose in a hypothetical universe one Sally uh uh ate the forbidden fruit instead mm-hmm. of Adam but in the real world it was even Adam
4: mm-hmm.
2: that that would imply that in hypothetical world one, Sally meets the necessary conditions for reasons, responsiveness. She still doesn't meet the re- uh, the conditions for reasons, responsiveness in the real world. Um, the, the concept of transference, If if that applies, then it's not really the case that one needs to be the formal source of an action in order to be responsible for that action. It, it, because because someone else's action could then be transferred to that person it would be very strange for example if we were to say that you know if i were if i were in germany in the 30s i would have done the same thing that a nazi officer did and therefore i deserve therefore i'm actually blameworthy in the real world for the holocaust I don't think that we reason like that usually about ethics or about moral responsibility, whether we're Calvinists or minions. I, I, I don't think that the concept of, of transferring from guilt from a hypothetical world into a real world um, is, is a thing. Uh, but I, I think we have beat the, the horse enough, you know, I'll,
0: I'll leave you with the last word and maybe Dan, if he wants to chime in, cause he's been rather quiet. Well, maybe we can we can get this because uh, the you know uh, john buck actually sent this question in and i put it up um it is answering that question could could adam and eve have refrained from disobeying god in this the actual world
1: i mean my answer would be yes and he had the categorical ability um to obey god um yeah so he wasn't um Obviously, Adam wasn't totally depraved to before the fall, and um, but he didn't have some type of, I just uh, kind of bent or inclination that uh, no matter what, it was inevitable that he was going to fall. Um, and if he if that was the case, then I don't think God would have said it was very good when God created Adam um so when, when, we, when we read the scriptures we say you know we see in ecclesiastes you know god created man upright and but man has sought out his own inventions so it specifically puts that responsibility directly on adam's uh shoulders and distances god from it
0: uh and i think i would answer this uh they could have done they, they could have done otherwise conditionally had had they wanted to do otherwise um, they, they, they could have, right. I, I, I'm not a necessitarian. I don't think that the, the, this world is, is the only, the only logically possible world. Um, mm-hmm. but I, but I also would say, well, I, again, cause I come from the top down, I would say, well, you know, I, I don't see how it could be categorically. I don't see how it categorically could have done otherwise, because, um, if, if, if God, again, none of us are pantheists. if prior to creation, logically prior God, God foreknew, I'm creating this world, and, and Adam will uh, will you know? Ad- Adam and Eve will fall. Um, then to say that that Adam could categorically have done otherwise just is to say that just that just is synthetically identical with saying God's knowledge could be wrong. Um, and so I, I just hold the impeccability of of God's knowledge, and so I think that that just is metaphysically not possible. So, but I think conditionally yeah. had had because you could say conditionally had they wanted to do it otherwise they could have because had they wanted to do otherwise is basically had God decreed, had God created that world in which they chose otherwise, then they would have done otherwise. Had, had, had that, had that been what the, the what they wanted in the world that God created, then yes, they would have done otherwise.
3: Yeah. I would, um, I would just say, no, they, they couldn't have categorically refrained from disobeying God. I mean, it really boils down to the infra super lapsarian debate. And uh, as a, you know, reformed um, compatibilist, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's supra. So uh, it was Plan A from uh, all along, and so I could posit something like the Felix culpa theodicy here, um, but they did not have the categorical free will to refrain from disobeying God in the actual world. It was God's plan all along.
2: I I think they were able to refrain from disobeying I hate the double negative so I would say they were able to obey God's will um I think that if they were only able in a conditional sense then by implication nothing was lost in terms of ability to obey God between creation and the fall because they because fallen humans have the conditional ability to obey God and if that's the only kind of ability that Adam had then he didn't lose that ability. Um, I think that I think th- there was something that he lost. He he lost something. Um, he lost an ability to do good within the fourfold, you know, Augustinian framework of in the beginning he was able to sin and not to sin. After the fall, he was only able to sin, but not able not to sin. And I think the Belgian Confession says something similar um, in Article 14 that. That they were, and I'm quoting it here. They were able by their will to conform in all things to the will of God. And I, I don't want to go on quoting it, but but they all. But it goes on to say they lost their excellent gifts which they received from God as a result of the fall. So there's there's a real transition from our abilities previous to and post the fall.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go to the next one. Uh, Chris wants to know from Dan Finney, uh, how can God know a future true libertarian choice?
1: That's a good, that, that's an excellent question. So I, th- I think there's there's definitely an aspect of, of mystery to this. I, I don't know the answer of how God can know a future the future at all. Um, it's There's two forms of this question. One is saying, well, that's a problem that you don't know how God knows it. But then there's another uh, more um, advanced form, which says there's a contradiction in him knowing it and it being libertarianly free. And I'm very happy to defend against that second version that it, there's a there's an incoherence or a contradiction in God knowing the future libertarian free choices of creatures, and I think there's very strong uh, reasons to reject that, and I'm, I specifically follow something like Occam's approach, but it's basically there's a dependence relationship on um, that knowledge of that future event and um, God's knowledge of that future event. Um, but what I don't uh, get into is, well, how God Uh, knows these future things because he's just his knowledge is infinite and um, um, so I don't I don't know how it's not like he I I think William Lane Craig has a great uh, illustration here you know well how is God able to um, create out of nothing or whatever you know like basically Mm -hmm. well did God have to do a bunch of push-ups or something like that to get his ability to create out of nothing no you know he's just infinitely powerful well um so so there's there's so the weaker form of it even though there's a mystery aspect to it i don't i, I don't wor- i don't worry about that too much
2: yeah i mean i i appreciate the question i think that um god's omniscience is an essential attribute god does not emphasize his essential attributes through mechanisms and to the extent that chris is asking how if, he, if by how he means what is the mechanism by which he, God could know a, a future true libertarian choice, there is no how. I don't think there is a mechanism, uh, just as there is no how uh, God creates mm-hmm. the world ex nihilo, there is no there's no means. You know, he doesn't go into the bank of angelic pixie dust and then create the world out of the pixie dust, because then now we just push the question back. How did he, where did the pixie dust come from? How did he create the pixie dust? And we, in order to avoid the panentheism of Jonathan Edwards, we have to avoid saying something like God made the world out of His own mind, so that the mind is the eman- so that the creation is like emanations of God's own thoughts, or, or, or something like that. We have to affirm the mystery that God creates ex nihilo, and this is an essential attribute for which there is no other mechanism. And I think it's the same way God knows anything; it, it, there, there is no how. It's an essential attribute.
0: Uh, next one. This, so this is uh, returning to provisional perspective that they want to know again, if you, uh, Dan and Finney, affirm or deny, this is the second part of that traditionalist statement. Um, uh, and they want to know if, you know, previously you both, had kind of said like, no, we can't affirm this part, but we maybe, maybe this way, this way, right? So this, this is that second, the second clause, I, th- I think in the same one, they want to know if you affirm uh, or or deny this
2: it doesn't it almost seem like they're uh, interviewing us yeah maybe maybe we yeah. should let
0: know we're taken we're I already mean, i mean i think there's a sense we're we're uh well i you know I, i'll i'll try to stay ecumenical but i think there's a sense we're provisionists don't quite know what to do with our, with with you know uh with armenians in, in the historic sense um so i i think that maybe we are I, I don't want to
1: you know, yeah. motives, but. So, so I would say yes, I can affirm this, and yes, I can and do affirm this clause, and it almost seems at odds with the previous clause, which said that that uh, that there was no incapacitation, right? <laughs> 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 this is it, 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 no center is remotely capable, and the other one said there's no incapacitation. So I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I'll I'll leave it be. But this specific clause is <laughs> true. <laughs> so
2: I just I just realized the the last couple of words here the holy spirit's drawing through the gospel and now i'm remembering all these arguments we've had internally with various provisionists about the means of grace whether the gospel the spoken words of the gospel are by themselves sufficient for belief and i was going to agree dan but then i realized i think that what they mean i i agree that the holy spirit draws us through the gospel But I think what they mean is not the Holy Spirit's operation alongside the gospel, but literally the words of the gospel being spoken is enough to uh, bring faith. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work in convicting the heart, the human heart, and things like that. So if if that's what they mean, I would say no. But if they mean more simply the Holy Spirit's drawing through the gospel. Yes, I, I do believe the Holy Spirit uses means and methods to, to to bring people to him. The gospel is a means, but I would I would just qualify that by saying the Holy Spirit also convicts and leads alongside of people who are hearing the gospel. You know, I I hate to hammer provisionists with with the Pelagian boogeyman, but I would I would say that, you know, Augustine, when Augustine um rejected Pelagians there was a time when he rejected Pelagians and also affirmed free will and he specifically attributed to Pelagius the teaching that grace is necessary for salvation but that upon closer examination of what Pelagius meant by grace he just meant education so learning the gospel being taught the gospel and Augustine said at first, it seemed that Pelagius was teaching grace, but instead, it, it it actually seemed on closer examination that he was teaching just salvation through education, salvation through learning, this, learning about the gospel intellectually. Um, so with that, I would just add that okay. caveat.
0: Okay. Uh, let's see.
2: <laughs> Somebody in the comments said, "Score one for biblical panentheism."
0: <laughs> well, I think I think Warren McGrew was actually was it Warren McGrew that, that actually said that he's he's a a, a panentheist of some kind. I, th- I think it was. Yeah, he did. Uh, he makes
3: distinctions between them, but
0: yeah, uh, Tr- Trinity Radio. So I, I think this is Braxton using it. I I, I don't think. Uh, it's pritchett or or an admin i think this is braxton that normally does it he says this is unfortunately very niche but i enjoyed this one more than most videos in the past year and he said i don't mean more than on this channel i mean i've enjoyed this video more than most videos in general in the past year so uh awesome that that was about an hour and 55 in we're about an hour past that so maybe we've sunk that ship (laughs) once he made the comment but uh thank you thank you for that um uh, I think there was another uh, another couple of questions um,
3: let's see well, while he's waiting I do uh, um, I really like the the move for simple foreknowledge theists saying that we just don't know I think that's an honest one and I think that's the correct one. Um, if you try to do anything more than that I think it starts backfiring um, so I applaud you guys and sticking to your guns god simply knows yeah and that's it
0: i i mean i i think there's a sense where we're at some level every position when you get down to why does god do whatever or how sure. does he do whatever i i think every view at some point is going to say look at the end of the day there's just certain things that are inscrutable uh <laughs> however i think you know not not to pick on uh, our, our lutheran brothers and sisters but i you know i think some examples where we say look there there, there's an argument on the table that that A and, and B are are somehow attention or contradictory or something that 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 appeal to mystery to overcome objections um, can sometimes fall really flat. Um, yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day. You know, uh, we're, we're like for, you know, Dan is very comfortable saying, Look, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable saying there, there's a certain level of mystery of how God knows, how, how God is omniscience, and, you know, there's no mechanism. I, I'm i very comfortable a certain day of, you know, a certain kind of way of saying, Look, uh, how, how can God determine something? And and even in some cases, we see him cause certain things, and yet He's he's praiseworthy for what we would be blameworthy for at a certain level. I just say, Well, I mean, God is God and we're not. And I'm not exactly sure how that all works out at the end of the day, but it is what it is. Um, So this one question is, uh, this came up uh, in in context of our our last discussion is persuasion force. If God, knowing the heart passions of the individual persuades the person to choose what he wills.
3: I would say no.
1: (sighs) This is such an interesting one. Okay, so let's let's uh, mostly no, but I, let's take it. Let's take an example in which I think you could probably we would probably all say yes. So let's say that uh, um, physical determinism were true, and you know that there's a cause and effect relationship between what is I'm seeing, and that's what's going in through my eyeballs, and that's causing something in my brain, and then there's a chain reaction in my brain that you know spits out, and so I'm literally like this input output. Um, Type device depending on what's coming in that's what's going out um and you know in a, in a case like that yeah it does amount to force it's just a force that we don't uh, normally see and it's, it's microscopic or that sort of thing but i don't think that uh, determinists are necessarily bound to that model of causation and i think i heard that from colton and tyler today that when they talk about god's um Uh, role in Providence, in some weak sense, it's a type of causation, but it's not that type of causation. And even though we don't have libertarian free will, we have some form of agency that's different than that type of model. So um, I think they would uh, rightly say no to a question like that, but a hard determinist like a Dan Barker um, maybe should say yes to this question. I think it's based on just the words in the question, no.
2: Um, I think that if there were additional facts, such as um, God forming the heart directly or indirectly, if God himself makes a person um, persuaded and he, actually, you know what? The more I think about it, I think force is a very specific type of determinism. And so actually let me let me take that back. I don't think that I don't think that it would be force. I don't think that it would be
0: force. Yeah, I I I, I was actually just going to say what you just said, which is that if if by force you mean like what we mean when we say well someone was forced against their will, um then then I would say no, and and, and in some sense we would have to say well uh, it, if persuasion is that type of force, um, then all rhetoric right violates uh, free will, right? because if, because if I give a compelling argument um, to someone and someone is reasons responsive and it, and it works through their normal operating agency and, and rationality and all that kind of stuff, then it wouldn't matter because if I just the fact that I persuaded someone would mean that I force them against their will, I think that's just too strong. Uh, of a, of a statement. And so, um, so depending on what you mean by, I, I guess for me, I would say I, I, depends on what you mean by force. And it depends on what you mean by persuasion. Cause there is a type of persuasion where someone persuades me to do something by putting a gun to my head. Um, you know, that, that's a type of persuasion. So I, I, I guess, you know, I would say uh, a, a lot, I, I would just have to know what we mean by all of these before I could really answer. But generally, if we just mean I'm persuaded by something then no, it's not, it's not forced in that type of violation of freedom sense. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Question also from G Atlas, who determined the truth value, the truth value, I'm guessing of the conditional statement of judges 16, 17 to 16, and doesn't it speak to whom Samson was at heart? So 16, 17, I, I looked this up earlier. Um, it's when he's lying with Delilah um, and she convinces him because she loves him and all of that. Um, and so he basically tells her that if then uh, conditional, if if someone cuts my hair, then I'll become weak um, uh, like any other like any other man. Um, I'm not sure the relevance of the question, but I don't,
2: yeah, I don't really understand the question yet. Determining the
4: truth
0: value. Um, Dan, Dan, you're, you're muted somehow. Okay. So
1: if, if, if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me. So the, um, this is based on God's, uh, covenant promise to Samson, a very unique one, but that was contingent on S. right Val. So it is God who determined this, the, the truth value of this conditional. But but you're right. I don't, I don't know exactly how that fits into the discussion as a whole. It's going to into yeah. the next one.
0: Ironic Pelagian, isn't it true that only the open theist can consistently hold that, uh, I think, Adam and Eve may not have eaten from the fruit? No. I think all four of us would say no in, in different respects, but I think all of us would say no. Right. I would say no. Uh, question for the libertarians. Why is it necessary for an individual to be the ultimate source of their actions to have free will with respect to those actions? Compatibilist, why is it unnecessary?
2: Yeah, so I think uh, this kind of relates back to uh, the consequence argument, the manipulation case arguments. Um, Derek Periboum, uh introduces a number of cases, which is hard to 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 go over in a in, in a in a verbal discussion. It's been, this is why philosophy is better done in, in writing. But paraboom, his manipulation case arguments is case number one. I think is suppose Mary. Uh, is acting under the influence of a neuroscientist who implants suggestions into her mind, um, which she then acts upon irresistibly. In some sense, it's true that Mary would satisfy the necessary conditions of conditional ability, even if her will were excited and controlled by someone else, that if she had wanted to she wouldn't have done whatever x y and z is but it but but it seems most people's folk intuitions on this subject would be that mary whose actions are the result of or the consequence of influences which were implanted by someone else she would not be morally responsible and so, and there are a number of other cases that Derek Peraboom makes. And I think that it involves similar intuitions that Vanden and Wagen and others have used in the consequence argument. That if a person um, is not responsible for the cause of an event, he can't be responsible for its consequence. And I mean, this is a really intuitive, plausible view that he, you know, even when it comes down to like every civil court case in the world has a trial on liability before it does a trial on damages, because if you're not responsible for the cause of an accident, then you can't response, be responsible for payment of the damages. Um, so I think that the consequence argument and the manipulation case arguments demonstrate that. Um, I think also, I think scripturally, you know, we have James that tells us that God does not tempt people to do evil. And I know that compatibilists have a certain understanding about that. I and mean, we we can there are debates as to whether he whether God does tempt people to do evil on the uh, on the Calvinistic view. Um, you know, we have we have uh, God protecting people in, in First Corinthians and in so that they repent. Um, and so I think that it's important that when we when we talk about being a source, it's not enough to just bodily do an action, just like Tyler said, if I do something bodily, but it's the result of someone persuading me with a gun, then I'm not the ultimate source. You know, so even on a compatibilist view, there is there is a necessity of sourcehood. We just define we just understand their requirements differently.
3: Yeah, I, I would agree. So it's not as if Compatibleists say sourcehood is not unnecessary. We just think that efficient sourcehood, or ultimate sourcehood, as what is called in the literature, is unnecessary. And uh, I know that the manipulation arguments are going to try to say why it is necessary. So Paraboom's 4 case, Mealy's Zygote, um, uh, Keynes Walden 2, those manipulation-type arguments are going to try to pinpoint the fact that, yes, some sort of sourcehood is necessary, uh, 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 ultimate source is necessary. The reason why I find it ultimate source unnecessary is because I, we can talk about it, but I think Sartario uh, gives a fantastic steel man argument for the sourcehood condition. And as she finds it's question begging and I, and I, so do I, this idea that um, without being the ultimate source, you could not do otherwise we need independent reason for why why that's the case. Maybe the consequence argument comes in, saves the day there. I don't know, but uh, I just don't think that ultimate sourcehood is necessary. I still hold, just like Vela and all Calvinist compatibilists, that some sense of sourcehood is necessary.
1: Um, you're muted, Tyler.
0: Sorry, uh, I uh, I don't. You were right at three hours, um, so we probably should should be be wrapping up. I mean, I have more time, but I you know I think I think three hours is is, is long for a video. I, I I don't know if I want to compete with uh, with some of the other channels that have like seven hour discussions lives. Um, there is there is one more follow up uh, to Dan and Finney about uh, open theism and liberty. I don't know if you want to take it or just wrap up at three hours.
1: It's up to you. You, you to can be the source of that one,
0: <laughs> as I'm determined to be. Um, all right, so let's do. Um, uh, this is the the follow up question, and and then we'll close from this one. Um, the polls are closed, people. No more no more questions. Uh, the follow up. Hold on. If, if if you know Irenic, uh, this is a, this is a good question. Hold on. If God knows the future perfectly, how is it Adam and Eve could in actuality do any differently than what God knows they will do?
1: Thank the you. short answer is that because "can" and "will" are different words and different concepts, and we shouldn't slam them together as if they're they're not. What What would be interesting is if they did otherwise, um, right? That's when you get into a contradiction. But just the ability to do otherwise from from what they will do is not a n- not an issue.
2: yeah i essentially agree with Dan. um i think i'm trying not to use too many words because this question is like a it's like a hold on but it's but it invites another couple of hours of of discussion on uh modal relations causal relations foreknowledge, and free will i i I think humans can do differently from what god knows they will um because god knows that they could have done differently from what they will um and god knows what they like the, and so the relation is is different. God, God can't know something that's not true. But the fact that I have done X does not entail that I couldn't have done Y. And therefore, it doesn't show that God couldn't have believed that I was able to do Y. And so it doesn't really, and so just like Dan says, you don't get from um, will to, to can in that way.
0: All right. I, I, I have some follow-up questions for this one, but for the, for those watching, uh, Dan and I are actually uh, working out um, uh, a couple conversations uh, in the future where, where some of these topics will be will be hashed out. So um, if you enjoyed this conversation, um, Dan and I are going to be continuing it uh, a little bit different focus, but continuing it uh, on our channels um, and, uh, and and Eli, uh, I think I can out him Eli Ayala. Um, has agreed uh, to hold a, a final discussion between the two of us after that on his channel. So if you appreciate uh, this content, uh, definitely keep an eye out. Uh, wrapping up, uh, kind of going around the horn again, uh, clockwise, uh, if you could uh, let people know if they, if they appreciated this, um, if they, if, if you have a, you know, uh, Dan, I know you like, you have a YouTube channel. Um, if, uh, if, if there's YouTube channels or if there's Facebook groups that you regularly kind of haunt, uh, where people who want to come have discussion or ask you questions about this, where where can people where can people find each one of you? We'll kind of just go wrap around, and then we'll be uh, be all done. Um,
1: thanks. So yeah, I'm on Facebook, and then also uh, um, Turton Fan and I have a channel called Conversations in Calvinism where we put out uh, videos like like this um, from uh, a couple times a week. I don't, I don't have a, a page. I mean, you can add me on
2: Facebook if you'd like, uh, that's, or, or LinkedIn, I guess.
3: Yeah. So my buddy and I are, uh, at the very foundations of starting a, uh, similar podcast. We're just talking about, uh, Calvinism and different kinds of uh, views that oppose it. Um, kind of helping me flesh out some of my more tricky, uh, Parts of my philosophy and theology, and that's called Truth C Squared Podcast. So it's just him kind of grilling me on questions, very, like, very early stages, but um, it's still there. It's found on YouTube. Um, But I'm also uh, pretty, I'm an admin of uh, the debating theology group on Facebook. So if you search that, it's public. Um, I think. Uh, Dan and Finney, I think you're a group group member of there, I can't remember, but um, so I'm pretty regular on there. I don't really post that much, but, uh, and again, if you wanted to add me, you can, as long as you don't look like a serial killer, then I'll probably add you. Um, so that's how you can find me.
0: And for me, you can find me here. Uh, so hit the subscribe down below, hit the bell uh, to receive updates. Uh, you can also find the podcast. This is actually an unusual topic for the YouTube channel. We just, we wanted to get a, the, the video going. The YouTube channel is actually typically dedicated towards apologetics uh, with, with unbelievers and atheists. Uh, the podcast is typically geared more towards uh, in, in-house discussions on theology, but I'll I'll uh, I have some of these every now and then. So uh, you can find it here. You can find the podcast on, on iTunes or anywhere else where fine podcast content is. Uh, or find the Free Thinker group page on Facebook. So thank you all again very much. This has just been uh, such, a, such a fantastic discussion. I appreciate all of you very much. And uh, good night and God bless to everyone.
4: Thank you.